I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Check engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 243. And today on the show, I'm joined by Ryan Fuhrer of the QDMA to take a very advanced look at how wind, thermals, and air currents impact deer and deer hunting. Before we get to the show, though, I want to give a quick thank you to our friends at Lacrosse Boots for their support of this podcast episode. I've been wearing the Alpha Burley Pros this year with 800 grams of thin insulation. Been very comfortable so far, and I put them to the test this past week as we were down to temperatures into the 30s. That's the coldest I've worn them in so far this year, and it wasn't an issue at all. They were super comfortable, kept me warm, kept me uh, in the tree happily hunting, and that's all you can ask for from a boot. On top of that, they're also waterproof. They're about as scent-free as you can get when it comes to a boot. They're comfortable hiking pretty long distances. Surprisingly, even though it's a rubber boot, these boots fit your foot quite nicely. I've walked long distances, and it hasn't been an issue. So if you're in the market for new boots, head on over to lacrossefootwear.com to learn more. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today in the show... We're going deep into the weeds on a single topic, and that topic is wind and thermals and air currents and all these things and how they impact how deer smell and how you and I should be hunting. And joining us to have this discussion is an avid deer hunter and the Quality Deer Management Association's Senior Regional Director and Field Supervisor, Ryan Fuhrer. And Ryan is a guy who has hunted mature deer all across the country, and he's studied this craft under some of the very best hunters out there. And one of the keys that Ryan is so successful is because he's gone above and beyond the average hunter's understanding of this topic of wind, thermals, how deer smell. Ryan is an absolute wind and thermal junkie. So it just seemed to me that he would be the perfect guy to help us get into the nitty-gritty of this topic, which which is really of of the utmost importance for deer hunters that there might not be a single thing more important for deer hunters than understanding wind and how these deer smell because the nose as most of us know the whitetail's nose is this number one defense mechanism and if we want to get close to these deer 
especially a mature buck, we have to find some way to avoid their nose or fool their nose or take advantage of some kind of weakness that they have because there's not very many weaknesses. So Ryan is going to give us a level of in-depth knowledge on this topic that I don't think we've ever gotten to before on the podcast. I'm very excited about that. With this being the case, though, I do want to point out that if you are a brand new hunter, if you're just getting into it, or if maybe you haven't started hunting yet, you're just intrigued, there's, there's, it's likely, I guess, I was going to say there's a chance, but it's probably just plain likely that some of these concepts and details are going to get a little bit confusing for you. This is definitely an advanced kind of course that we're taking here today. So I'd recommend that if you fall into that camp, make sure that you go back and listen to some of the past podcasts, especially the the deer hunter, or it's, what is it? Beginner's Guide to Deer Hunting podcast. I think that was episode 216. That's going to give you a brief introduction to understanding the wind and how that impacts deer hunting. Understand that first and just kind of try to wrap your head around that. Try to implement that before you get into this level of detail. Uh, And even after that, if you come and you start listening to this one, don't get discouraged if this does seem a little daunting. You know, learning a deer hunt is a challenge. There's a lot to it. and, And that's why I do want to say one more thing to you new hunters out there. At a minimum, during this episode, fast forward and listen to the last 15 minutes of this one, because at that point in the show, we actually pivot in topics, and we end up talking about some of the programs that the Quality Deer Management Association is putting together to help mentor and bring new hunters into the fold. So there's a few different programs, a couple different ideas and suggestions about how you can get connected with folks who can help you learn how to hunt. Definitely want to make sure you guys hear about that. Now, for the rest of you that are into this kind of heavy detail, advanced wind kind of conversation, get ready for some very interesting stuff. And uh, we do have a very exciting bonus guest joining us today too. I'm not going to say who it is yet. I'm going I'm to kind of make you guys wait and find this one out. But uh, I will give you a clue. His name rhymes with Birder. Uh, so there's that to look forward to as well. Uh, now that said, before we dive into this one, we do need to thank one of our partners who helped make this podcast possible, and that is Onyx. Onyx is the maker of the Onyx Hunt app. And just a couple days ago, our bonus guest for today's episode, Birder, well, we were up at our Northern Michigan Deer Camp. And on our second evening of that hunt, we decided to go and chase some, or hopefully chase some deer, on some public land that we'd never been on before. At the truck, before we headed out to hunt, each of us pulled up our Onyx app and we marked our truck location so we knew where we had to come back to after dark. Then we each downloaded an off-grid version of the map. Just in case we lost service, we would still be able to see the map, we'd still be able to see our location. And then we headed our separate ways. As I started walking, I turned on the tracker feature that the app has, which records your exact path as you walk along somewhere, which would allow me, after dark, to follow that same path all the way back to the vehicle. Then, as I was sneaking into the timber, I had the Onyx app up, looking at it the whole time to see the aerial map on uh, the, the, the phone and comparing that to what I was actually seeing in front of me. And I worked my way towards a certain terrain feature I saw on the map that I thought might be promising. Now, I bring all this up, I mention all this because I think it's a great example of how handy and how often the Onyx Hunt app can be used during a hunt like this. So, if you'd like to check it out for yourself, head on over to your mobile app store of choice and search for Onyx, that's O-N-X. If you do end up purchasing some of the maps, you can use promo code WIRED, that's W-I-R-E-D, for 20% off. All right, I am here now with Ryan Fuhrer and Josh Furter Hilliard on the line. 
Uh, this is gonna be this is gonna be a good time. And and Josh, you've been, you've been on a ton. We don't need to introduce you too much. But Ryan, first time appearance on the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And and, and it's kind of interesting. This is gonna be an interesting dynamic because correct me if I'm wrong, but technically, uh, Ryan. You're, you're Josh's boss, right? So if I tell you all the dirty secrets that Josh has, is that going to get him in trouble? <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Technically, I am his boss, but uh, no, definitely not going to get him in trouble. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll be on my best behavior, Ryan. You're, yeah, definitely. Be on your best behavior. So, <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think about the fact that, that uh, Josh has, been, has become iconic in the hunting world with a single name? When people hear Furter, they know who this man is. Is that uh, is that impressive? Or yeah, scary? yeah, that that's awesome. You know, like one of the first times I heard it, I was like, "Man, you got to run with that, Ferner." It is, and he's like, "No, no, no, it's one of those horrible nicknames." Oh my god, I can't believe it's taken off. And you know, I think I'd sent him a few text messages where I'd started out or ended with Ferner, and and then I even got a couple people at the office, which actually my boss would be Josh's boss's boss sent. I saw an email one time that he finished with hashtag further. So <laughs> it's definitely picked up some speed there. It's just pretty cool. That is funny. <laughs> Never would have thought back in high school. I get emails from people like addressing it to further, like not Josh. It's like, <laughs> Hey further. Like I want to start a branch or what, you know, what's going on at this event? And it's like, Oh my gosh, just <laughs> ridiculous. We need a t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah, we really do. <laughs> um, so, so I guess uh, I'll take twenty five percent of those profits. I might have to negotiate that down a little bit, Josh. But uh, I'll give you a good handshake and a slap on the back. How about that? Um, uh, but Ryan, could you give us a little bit of an introduction, like kind of a cliff notes, as I usually like to try to get here as far as um, what you're doing, since you, you're 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 Furter's boss. But what does that mean? And um, and how did you kind of get to this point? I'd like to hear a little bit about uh, your personal journey too, real quick. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so what am I doing as far as with QDM? I have uh, I'm basically I oversee the regional director. So Josh is a regional director for Quality Gear Management Association, and there's uh, the eight others aside from himself. And, you know, they basically, you know, are the grassroots. They're in touch with the, the volunteers uh, out there in QDMA land doing their stuff. And Josh is kind of the liaison between them and the home office, making sure the, the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed, so to speak, whether it be uh, grassroots fundraising, educational events, you know, habitat management type stuff, you know, all facets really. Uh, being a regional director is a pretty interesting job because you know you wear so many different hats at any given any you know different time of the year obviously but um so i oversee those guys um you know make sure that further's out there doing what he needs to be doing and uh and such so that's in a nutshell that's what i do among other things uh, at the home office responsibilities as well okay okay so so i understand you have an interesting kind of history as a hunter though too um, I've heard rumors that you spent a lot of time with the Wenzels maybe back in the day, and you've kind of been all over the country hunting and shooting tournament archery and stuff. Uh, can you fill in the gaps on that? Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, it, it, it's, I'm really fortunate to work, you know, for the Quality Deer Management Association. I say that because everything I've ever done in my life, one way, shape, or form, has revolved around a whitetail deer, even from an early age. So, I started shooting archery at about eight years old, um, only because I was extremely fascinated with bow hunting. I wanted to be a bow hunter really bad. And, um, 
interestingly enough, my parents weren't really hunters. Um, my dad hunted, he was the type, you know, he may hunt the first day of Pennsylvania gun season, you know, with the other 1 million hunters, um, type of deal, but, you know, never bow hunted or anything like that. And for whatever reason, I don't know why I had a friend in, you know, like, uh, grade school that his dad owned a small archery shop and it was within walking distance of my house it was just a little you know like 25 by 30 building type of deal like a garage and i was just fascinated by everything in there you know the arc you know the, the bows the arrows the broadheads even the smell of it. i can still remember the smell um and it it literally you know it took my life over trying to be a deer hunter a bow hunter uh, and learning on my own so um I started shooting a bow only to be a bow hunter. And then that kind of led into a couple of local tournaments, you know, here and there. And then, you know, I started traveling on the weekends, uh, as a youth to the, the bigger national 3d tournaments. This would have been back in like, uh, 90, 91. Um, you know, so I shot all facets of archery through the early nineties. I actually shot and ended up doing pretty well. One time I was like ranked third in the world as a, as a youth archer, 3d archer. Uh, back then it was just the IBO. The ASA had probably just gotten started. So it was the IBO more so back then. Um, I think my senior year in high school, or maybe like the summer between my junior and senior year, I decided that's when I shot my first pro tournament. Um, so I shot uh, my first pro tournament in Bedford, Indiana, the IBO, which uh, was pretty cool. I shot my first pro tournament with Randy Almer. You know, he's a kind of a legendary bow hunter. Wow. So I was placed in a group with him. Um, it was, you know, really neat, but, you know, and then it just kind of grew from there. I did a lot of shooting and a lot of hunting. Um, somewhere around that same time, that 17, 18, 19 time frame, I can't remember when, but I met, uh, I was, uh, you know, kind of working in the industry, you know, going to shows and such with the archery industry. Uh, in the summer, when I say working, it wasn't like it was a real high-paying job. It was just basically they needed somebody to stand at a booth, so I went and did that, and, and they paid me like five bucks or something and bought me sandwiches. <laughs> but, uh I met uh, I met uh, a, a fellow that was working for I believe it was Dart at the time Dart Interactive Target Systems the uh, the screens either Dart or ITS I can't remember twenty plus years ago but anyway he he was doing the same type of thing as I was and I noticed his name his last name was Wenzel and I was a huge Wenzel fan growing up you know in in high school when you put like your favorite movie and your senior you know your yearbook type of deal. Um, mine was bow hunting October whitetails. I remember like <laughs> I went to pretty big high school. I remember everybody like, what's that? You know, and that was my favorite movie at the time. And anyway, this kid has, you know, his name tag said Brad Wentzel. And I was like, you know, you know, working in the industry, I kind of see, you know, got to know him. And I said, yeah, in relation to Barry or James, like, yeah, Barry's my dad. Like, oh my God, are you kidding me? And then, <laughs> you know, him and I ended up becoming and still are, uh, you know, best of friends. And through the, you know, him, um, I got, you know, met Barry and Gene and uh, hunted with them and, you know, hung out with them and, you know, whatever, uh, just about everything with them. And I, that's probably when I really started, uh, I guess, honing my, my craft as far as, as somebody would call it in another industry, I guess, learning the skills of a whitetail deer hunter. Uh, before that, I, I like to, I, I've said it before with a couple of my buddies, you know, it was like a wolf. It was the law of large numbers. I just, I thought like if, the harder you hunted, the better the outcome would be. And I just basically just hunted every minute I could, you know, and I don't really know if there was any 
calculations or you know methodical thinking behind anything i did back in those early days it was just pure desire to be out there mm-hmm. and uh sometimes i even still hunt some of the same ground and I, I remember you know where i may have had a spot where i hunted and i shook my head thinking what was i thinking and and other times i walked past spots that i didn't hunt with thinking you know man what was i thinking i remember this being all tore up with sign and i walked through it to get somewhere else um so yeah, I really, I really started paying attention to the details probably when I was around, you know, 19, I guess. Um, so I'll be 42 this year. So I guess a little over 20 years, um, really started paying attention to the details and probably more so than anything because of the Wenzels and, and even to take a step further, probably Barry, uh, I really, you know, hung out with him a good bit and learned a ton from Barry Wenzel. He's, I used to say like the, uh, literally you know like the tiger woods you know to golf and the michael jordan to basketball he just he just had a knack that was really i say had just i just talked to him yesterday he's 74 and still doing it but uh he has a knack for figuring things out or seeing things in the woods that, that you know other people may overlook or just thinking a little different i really can't even i can't even describe you know and, and that's anybody you know in any craft with a gift they just they just have that that little bit of an edge and uh, he definitely did, and, and definitely does a decent job explaining it as well. Mm. Yeah. So, when it came to that <clears throat> that influential experience you had with Barry there, and you're growing up, and now you're in your twenties, and you're starting, like you said, hone your craft. Was there any kind of aha moment that maybe he pointed out to you, or maybe you kind of figured out yourself as you started implementing some of his ideas when you were actually out there in the field or you're sitting at home and thinking about things. Like I'm always curious for people, like when their light switch moment where they went from, you know, struggling to, to kill deer consistently or to kill mature deer consistently. And then they flip this switch and they get this moment and they said, Oh, if I start doing this big thing, or if I start thinking about this big thing, and then everything kind of starts moving in a different direction. Do you have, a moment like that yeah that you can think of yeah definitely um it's it's funny but i can almost specifically put my finger on it it was you know it was when i started to understand wind and and how a deer used its nose right um and then to take it a step further when you i went into detail on breaking down how well a deer smells you know, and, and just in layman's term, to try to be rather quick, you know, we have somewhere between five and six million olfactory sensors in our noses. A German Shepherd has somewhere around 238 million, and a white-tailed deer has somewhere around 330 million. So um, over 300 million anyway. But, you know, the the point is, you know, we know how well German Shepherds smell. I mean, some German Shepherds can detect cancer in humans faster than or quicker than the, the world's most recent, you know, MRI machines and, and, you know, cadaver dogs alerting to dead bodies through 200 foot of rebel in the world trade center disaster and that type of deal. So when you, when you put it into perspective that a deer actually can smell better than them, um, it makes it's, it's an eye opening you know, moment for you. Like, man, I really need my scent to be going somewhere other than that deer's nose or, you know, I mean, especially for a bow hunter, um, you know, when you're, when you're talking, you know, back then for me inside that 30 yard line, you know, you definitely have to pay attention to those, those minor details that puts that in your favor. So it was, it was as soon as I started understanding the wind and direction, maybe not so much thermals at that point, but the air current, uh, because there's a difference between wind direction and air currents. 
and how well a deer smells and, and to do what I can to keep you know an animal from smelling me is when you know my it probably went like I remember struggling just to to see a mature buck you know like even if I saw it off in the distance I I, I, I felt like I was succeeding like oh man there's one wow cool you know it was 100 yards away but whatever I finally saw you know yeah. a, a, and a, then uh, then a mature buck was you know a, a three-year-old you know if I saw a three-year-old back then I was ecstatic right and then it you can slowly I uh, started picking up on the little things and you know next thing you're seeing them quite you know pretty regularly and then, you know all of a sudden you know you get that first one that walks by at 10 yards and it's completely you know you're you you've went undetected it just it just flips you know and then you just start so many of them all home moments start coming to you they usually come to me in the middle of the night it's weird I, i've have woken up at you know 3 a.m with oh man it's just like something that's clicked in my mind of of an area that i'm hunting or a ridge line and you know all this different stuff i had taken in you know maybe just from the last four or five trips walking around or whatever and then something would just click and i know i know now exactly where that stand needs to be and why and when you know what wind and, and what's going on and i've had a lot of those yeah, uh, three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Man, you couldn't have you couldn't have teed me up better because this topic that you just mentioned, wind and thermals and air currents and and all of that, that's what I'm really really interested in picking your brain about because I know you've done a lot of thinking on this and a lot of work around this. Um, so to, to start things off, can you elaborate? You mentioned a second ago that wind kind of wind direction is different than thermals is different than air currents. Can you help us understand? how those are different and, and, and I guess in the context of hunting? Sure. Um, so, you know, wind direction is basically whenever you, you know, wake up and you check your favorite uh, weather app or whatever you may be looking at, you know, the winds out of the southwest this morning at, at seven miles an hour. So that's what, you know, the direction the wind is coming from. So it's coming from the southwest and heading off to the northeast. Um, you know, that's your wind direction. Um, air current especially, and it changes whenever topography changes. So, you know, I've done a lot of hunting in the Midwest, as you have. Um, you know, it gets flatter. So air current, it becomes more steady in the Midwest because of flatter topography. But, uh, you know, in the mountainous regions of Pennsylvania, like where I grew up, I grew up hunting the, the big ridges, you know, steep ridges and, and deep valleys. Um, the air current, you have to kind of think of the wind, you know, or the direction of the wind like water. Um, you know, then it hits those ridges, and it creates eddies, and I've seen it do it with rocks, and I've seen it do it with big clumps of trees. So you have the the the, the wind direction coming out of the southwest, and then the air current is what happens after you know you get that steady wind out of the southwest pushing against a ridge line and just creating you know basically perpetual motion, if you will, or an eddying you know like in a stream, the water is eddying in a current behind a rock or in front of a rock or along or whatever it may be, and the stiffer the wind gets out of that direction obviously you know the more quote-unquote perpetual motion that it creates so uh that's the current uh and then also there's a drift to that you know when it picks up when you get higher speeds like today it's uh it's uh, over you know it's gusting like 25 miles an hour so then you'll have those gusts and then those gusts will stop and you'll have that calmness in between but because of that that 25 mile an hour power before of that gust there's there's a drift effect there's even there's still a current there um, and you can test that with milkweed, um, you know, throwing it up, you know, right when a, a gust takes off and watch what it does while it's being blown by the air. And when, whenever you feel that, that wind basically shut off, 
you know, that gust shot off in between those, you know, you may have two gusts, you know, how, like that calm in the middle type of deal, but you'll still see that milkweed, uh, you know, it, it's doing crazy things because of, of that drift effect or, you know, that perpetual motion, if you will, there's still force behind it. Um, and then, you know, it'll kind of dissipate. And then of a morning, and I was watching this this morning, matter of fact, the, the, as the thermals, as the sun got more overhead, the thermals were heating up, um, you know, like say like seven thirty quarter to eight this morning, my thermals were still falling really close to my tree stand. So I had a pretty stiff wind. Um, so my milkweed, so to speak, was going, you know, a certain direction. The wind would die down, but the milkweed continued to float in that direction. But when it died down with no power behind it, it was interesting because the sun hadn't heated up the forest floor right where I was at. It wasn't, it wasn't overhead enough. My thermals were still kind of falling. It was still colder down there. So it would literally suck that milkweed straight down to, to the ground. It was, uh, and, uh, and I was kind of playing with it, timing it just right to, to do it in that, that I don't know what to call it, that, that lag of wind, you know, in between gusts. And whenever that, that, that milkweed would run out of drift, would run out of power behind it, the thermals would, would pull it directly to the forest floor, which is interesting to know what was going on, but it also was very alarming to me. It was like, this isn't good. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to, you know, get a deer within 25 yards of me and I'm watching my scent just drop right, you know, where they're going to be standing type of deal. So, yeah. um, it's... when you start paying attention to that stuff, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's very helpful. Uh, back in my early days, I used to build fires um, and, and study fire and smoke. Um, just to, and I would, I would basically would create like a, a smoke map, an overlay over top of my maps, just to, because I hunted such steep terrain that, um, you know, just because it would say the wind out of the West, it necessarily wouldn't hunt like it was out of the West. It may hunt like it was out of the, the Southeast or the Northeast, just because of the editing, 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 editing effect. Um, so yeah, I would build fires on my platforms in like coffee cans you know, in the off season, some, you know, sometimes two or three times a day, morning, noon, and evening, uh, on the same wind direction. And then do the same thing on a different wind direction. And, and you'd be amazed at what you would learn, uh, how smoke, you know, how the, the air currents, you know, float around your tree stand, um, on different wind, wind direction days and different times of day as well. Yeah. And then also how, like I say, clumps of trees or rocks or, or a hillside could cause the eddying effect. So, you know, wind out of the north, you know, the, your smoke's going to the south of you, then all of a sudden, you know, catch a ravine or catch a big clump of trees and start eddying and, you know, spin right around you and end up 50 yards to the north of you again, you know, and and do that all over again. Um, interesting stuff for sure. Yeah, that's <clears> it's <throat> one of those things that I've heard, you know, like uh, Neil and Craig Doherty have talked about doing that kind of thing yeah. a lot, developing that wind map. And it, it makes so much sense, but it does seem like a tremendous amount of work to go out there and map all of that. But I guess once you have that information, once you know what it does, and, and maybe maybe you pick your handful of top spots and then you you know make assumptions based, okay, we get most of our wins during hunting season, maybe northwest and west, so I'll, I'll go map those things out. If That's at least a good starting point. Um, it seems like a great way to do it. You also, I think I've heard you say, um, you can use those little like fireworks, smoke bombs and stuff to achieve the same thing. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I would buy those things out. Uh, every time I saw them on sale, they used to make different sizes of them. The little ones don't, I don't think they they do, you know, there's little, they're like little cherry bombs or whatever. They don't put off enough smoke, but they used to make bigger ones. Um, 
And then, you know, when I traveled, you know, through different states and they have those fireworks stands, I always stop and then they make them all sorts of different colors. But the bigger, the better, because they last longer. And like I say, if that doesn't work, I would, uh, I've used those junk oil packs. Um, I've used coffee canned. I mean, I've burned just about everything you can burn on a platform of a tree stand. But you're right as far as it's very time consuming. But the idea is, I think, I think the learning lesson from that is because I don't do it anymore. I mean, I've done it a little bit just to test some hypothesis type of deal, but the idea is to get an understanding for it. And then, like you say, pick those, those certain spots or those certain situations where you know that you're not going to run in because you can eliminate those areas. Um, that's what I, I think I've probably taken from that the most was there's just some spots I don't hunt anymore, no matter how great the sign looks. Um, and again, you know, it depends on what age class of deer you're hunting too, I think has a big, you know, there's a big difference between a two-year-old and a four-year-old and even a five-year-old or a six-year-old. So, you know, there's a lot of components that go into that. I wouldn't expect everybody to run out and go, oh, I have to do it this way. You know, how often, you know, how much of the season do you have to devote to hunting? Like if, if, if your season's, you know, six, six and a half weeks, like in Pennsylvania, and you've only have a couple weekends here and there and a couple vacation days, well, I'm, you know, d- you know, don't not hunt because the wind direction isn't suitable for your spot, you know, find another spot or, you know what, go enjoy the day anyway, type of deal. Um, so there's a lot of factors in there that go into, you know, how often you can hunt the property you're hunting. And then I think probably one of the most important things is the age class of deer you're trying to hunt as well. If you're really trying to target on a specific buck that you know is four or five, you know, plus, then you should probably pay attention to those details and put the put the odds in your favor as much as you can. Yeah. So I, I want to make sure and, and further make sure I don't forget to do this. I want to make sure that we come back and talk about some of these stands that you end up writing off as saying or stands or areas that you just find out you can't hunt because of something to do with the wind. Um, but I want to, I want to rewind a little bit to just kind of set the stage a little bit better for people that maybe are new to some of these concepts. Um, so you talked about how you're paying attention, <clears throat> excuse me, you're paying attention to, to wind and thermals and currents, but I want to like understand this in the context of like an example. So I can see like how you think about these things. So maybe could you use today's hunt? Cause you were out hunting this morning, as you just alluded to, could you tell us what you were thinking about leading into that hunt. So maybe this morning when you were planning where to go or why you were going to hunt or anything like that, can you explain to us how you thought about those three things, wind, thermals, current, and what aspects of that you were thinking about to choose where to go, when to go, how to hunt today. And and, and then maybe walk us through the hunt and how things ended up impacting things. Yeah. Um, actually today was my first set of the season and I'd just been you know busy with work and everything we were extremely hot. Uh, I think one, you know, last week we were pushing 90 degrees a couple of days, uh, beginning of last week, like last weekend and the last week, um, excuse me, the week before last, not just the other day. Um, <clears throat> and I think Thursday a front came in and literally like within about 36 hours, we had like a 35 to 40 degree temperature difference. Um, and as you know, you know, it, it just, when you have that big change, when you go from one constant, a big change and, you know, starting into another constant that really gets deer on their feet, especially in October, you know, middle of October. So I was really looking forward to trying to, you know, just find a, a time to get out here this week. And I was watching the weather and, you know, I knew this morning was going to be my only morning. And I went and pulled my cards on Sunday and um, one of my, my, the biggest buck uh, on the farm I'm hunting, he was just, 
just everywhere. He had been prancing around all week last week in the daylight. It went, obviously, when that when that big temperature change kicked in, uh, I had most of my cameras on scrapes, and he was at about all of them. Um, and I, I know him well for the last two years. He's a five-year-old. And I, I purposely stayed away from him today because the wind was going to, like I say, be, you know, steady of around 15 and gusting up to around 25. And it has some topography to it, the farm that I hunt and the stands where I know he was frequenting, you know, the areas, his core area, when I say, you know, home core area, um, was in an area that the winds will swirl on you when they get to being pushed around that much, that, that high of wind. And I didn't want to go in there and risk, um, having him out doing his thing and winding me. So I literally went to a stand from one end of the farm to the other is probably as far as you can get. It might be a mile even, uh, it's a pretty big place, but it's probably, you know, between a quarter and a half mile from the center of his core area. It's basically just the fringes, but it's a really good spot. I call it the inside corner, sometimes the corner pocket. Uh, it's an oak flat on the, on a corner of a, uh, uh, planted some Egyptian wheat and some other native grasses in there about a five acre field. And it's just got a lane around it. And it's the perfect little pinch of this oak flat kind of comes to this inside bend on a steep ridge. And I went there thinking, you know, I'm going to stay out of, of that dude's area. Just, just be great to get out and, and have a sit and, you know, kind of get the season started. It was a really nice cool morning, 42 degrees, but the wind was high. Um, and also, you know, I was hoping to get a doe, um, you know, fill a doe tag type of deal but uh the, the the only the first and only deer i saw this morning at 802 uh coming up this ridge working this scrape line was that buck you know like oh no and instantly as soon as i saw him i, I started to get worried because he was very nonchalant he was i watched him work four or five scrapes you know maybe in a matter of 60 yards and i mean he was really getting into them you know, kicking out scrapes, making rubs, working the overhanging branches. And, you know, he was just coming right up to shoot. And, and literally the funnel, he was in really narrows down like 13 yards from me. And there, when I got into the stand, there was a fresh scrape about, I don't know, less than six, seven yards from the base of the, my tree. So, and he was on that direct course and he was coming, you know, he was going to work those scrapes. And I just, as I mentioned earlier, I had just before that was, you know, doing the milkweed thing and, and watching the milkweed and my thermals pull that milkweed straight to the, to the ground, you know, inside the 10 yard line of my tree. And it, it just, it was like my, you know, worst case scenario. I was excited to see it. He's heading right at me, but I, I knew that it was only a matter of time until, until he uh, turned inside out there. And, you know, he kept working his way up and, and he got to a, a, a scrape that was about, it was actually 24 and a half yards. I arranged it later, but he was severely quartered too. It was almost coming right at me. Um, and what happens on this, how this funnel lays, it kind of bends around and I'm like right on the bend. So when he leaves that scrape, he's actually going to go in behind my tree, like 10, 11 yards. And then he's going to be like quartering away, you know, 12, 13 yards to get to this other scrape. So it was going to work kind of perfectly, but because of, of my thermals, the wind was, it wasn't going towards him. It was paralleling him but those thermals being pulled down to the ground and, and those big gusts, they were just creating havoc. Um, and, and, you know, I, I just knew that. And, you know, I don't, I knew better, you know, I guess, you know, like I said before, you know, I probably shouldn't have been hunting on that, trying to kill a buck, but I'm staying away from him, wanting to shoot a doe and also just want to be out there and enjoying it. 
you know, so I'm kind of holding my bow and I'm just like, well, maybe this will work. And, you know, at this point I'm starting to like, you know, pray a little bit like, man, this might just actually work. If I, if this wind just keeps down long enough and, you know, maybe he's not going to pay attention to, to the, all the details and he's just doing his thing and, you know, whatever. But, uh, yeah, he took a couple steps out of that scrape heading my way. And it was like he hit a wall and, and I mean, I literally, you know, his posture immediately changed. Um, he didn't blow out of there like I thought he would have. He he kind of, you know, he moved his head around a little bit to, and I could see him moving his nose to try to catch what he thought was my wind. And he must have moved it just right in one instance because, I mean, he turned and took two big hops and put some distance between me and him. And he stopped again. And at that point, he was, you know, maybe 45, 40, 45 yards, but there was some brush. And he just literally just kind of changed direction and just walked straight down over the hill and, and you know, got out of there. But, um, you know, that, that was the scenario this morning. I kind of knew that going into there with the, those high winds. And again, that's the difference between, you know, the Midwest. A lot of times, a lot of those deer in the Midwest, that high steady wind, they like that, that, that sense of comfort, you know, knowing that they're always, their nose is always keeping them safe. But when you, when you add topography to it and you get those gusts and that wind starts to swirl because of, you know, like where I was, there was a steep ridge, uh, basically to the south of me. So I just had swirling winds um you know it can work against you and a, a lot of times i think that that's that sixth sense i'm sure you've all or we've all heard that you know when you're talking to a group of hunters and somebody will say you know that those those deer especially those older ones they just have that sixth sense um i don't know the, the more i do this I, I like to think that that sixth sense is just those deer really really knowing you know how to use the terrain and the wind in their favor all the time. And then the hunter not completely understanding what's going on around in that sixth sense. Like, you know, if your thermals are on a rise or on a fall in the morning of an evening and, and adding air currents and stuff, you know, why your scent actually went to that deer's nose. Um, I think that, that that's that sixth sense that we see. Yeah. So, so I want to kind of unpackage a bunch of things that you talked about there. Let's talk about topography first. Um, can you explain or give us some examples of how different kinds of topography will mess with the wind? You know, the one that stands out to me always, um, is like, if you're down in a bottom, like if you're down and low, there's that swirling. Um, can you, can you elaborate on that and any other kind of topographic features that seem to have a consistent effect or something that you always keep an eye out for or aware of? Yeah, sure. And it changes uh, throughout the time of the year uh, because of sun position, right? Especially when you're talking topography and thermals. Um, a north-facing slope gets less sunlight in November than it does July, if that makes any sense, because the sun's yeah. overhead. So, And a north-facing slope is always your coldest facing. So that's the one that always sticks out to me. Um, when you're hunting a north-facing slope, it, especially, you know, we as deer, you know, tree stand deer hunters, uh, end of October, say through Thanksgiving, depending on how steep that hill is and how high on the hill or low you're on the hill, it may be nine, ten o'clock in the morning before the sun is up high enough or even later, uh, you know, to change those thermals. So, you know, and I've I've learned that through bad experience. Uh, a really good scenario here is if you can picture this and, uh, a ridge line running east to west um, on the on the west side of the ridge line almost excuse me on the east side of it to the northeast was like a, a bowl almost of a, a thicket you know just every little nasty thing you could think in there maybe encompass 20 acres or so 
and I just knew that, you know, I didn't really call it a betting area, but deer stayed there. There's just all these doe groups around there and everything. And this ridgeland, you know, ran east to west from this, this bedding area. And so the deer would come from the west, basically like it kind of angled. So they would come from the northwest across this north facing slope, if you will, if you can follow me. Um, and then, you know, heading to scent check this doe bedding area, as I called it or whatever, um, on a northeast wind. And I had hunted this, I was about three quarters of the way up on this ridge. And as I was scouting it, there was a, a seepage or a drainage that came out of this ridge line that basically forced movement around it, up it. So that the deer walking across the hill, they would come to this big drainage. You know, it was just seeping out of this, this north facing slope. And rather than, than cross, it was rather steep. They would, they would just, over time, all the trails just funneled around the top of it. You know, it was like a no brainer when you knew what was going on, you know, you hang on, you know, the, the, the south side of that and, you know, it funnels all the deer around you type of deal on a northeast wind. You know, it would only make sense that a buck could scent check that doe bedding area, um, you know, <clears throat> just with his nose, you know, from 75 yards away type of deal. So I hung a stand there and, you know, couldn't wait for that first northeast. And, and I got in there and every, you know, the wind's out of the northeast and every deer that first morning, I'll never forget this, you know, to the north of me was blown. It was it was a bunch of does and little ones and, you know, they're, you know, 30 yards, 20 yards, you know, to the north of me. And, you know, they're just hitting my wind. And I'm like, yeah, the wind's out of the north. There's no way they should be smelling me. And I hadn't tested it. You know, I'm like, what in the world's going on here? This is probably, you know, 10 years ago. And finally, you know, I, I went back in with the whole fire deal. I'm like, I got to figure this out. And, you know, build a fire. And what, what was happening was, it was there were light wind days. And again, wind speed has a lot to do with it you know i like to think i don't know i've never really measured but somewhere over eight mile an hour wind gets kind of forceful so it forces your scent or whatever in the direction it's coming from so it's basically pushing it with enough force that it'll get it there but when it's less than that a lot of times you know your scent or that hair air becomes heavy and it just kind of gravity takes its toll if you will especially on those cold thermals that are pulling you know towards the earth's surfaces and that was this exact occasion. It was, you know, one of those cold, crisp November mornings with hardly any wind at all. Um, you know, very overcast type of day. So I call that heavy air, you know, very heavy air type of day. And the sun was up, but it wasn't up high enough to where it was, you know, reaching the forest floor on that part of the, the north facing slope. So my thermals were, you know, working as if it were of an evening. My thermals, you know, my sense, you know, coming out of my body, if you will, or when I built the fire, you know, it's going up a little bit, but it was cooling down rather quickly because air temperature was cold. So the smoke's cooling down. And as it cooled down, it would go to the north a little bit with a north wind direction. The smoke would go to the north a little ways. But once it got cool enough and those thermals started pulling it, it would literally, you know, pull it to the ground and then suck it, you know, back down to the, to the bottom, which would be to the north of me. So that's what my scent was doing. If you think of yourself as a little fire, constantly putting off smoke, um, you know, yeah, it's going the right direction for, you know, a certain amount of time. But once that air cools down, once it cools it down, you know, from your body temperature uh, and those thermals pull down towards the earth surfaces, and then it's going to go, you know, you think of scent or that smoke just as water on a hillside and, and even fog, if you will. Fog always lays in the lowest parts of the fields. You know, if you're driving around in the morning and at a cool morning, you look where the fog is, it's always 
just like water, where water would pull up, fog pulls up, and that's usually you know the lowest, coolest spot, and that's what your scent does. And and uh, I learned, I still hunt that that fence line. That's, I, I call it the North Ridge stand, um, but I I don't I purposely set a stand about 80 yards from it that I hunt until about 9:30, you know, 20 to 10 somewhere there, and then I get down and sneak over into that stand and get up in it, you know, around 10 o'clock, if you will. Uh, the sun's usually high enough and the thermals are now going again back up the hill and it puts everything, you know, right into my favor. Those deer that, that are scent checking that ridge line, you know, on a north wind, the my scent my thermals are going upwards and, you know, to the south like they should be up over the hill type of deal. And I've actually shot deer from that stand, shot bucks out of that stand, you know, getting in at nine forty and I think the earliest I shot one at twenty after ten one time. I I've shot them at eleven. You know, I think one in one in the afternoon one time, but um, yeah, it was definitely an eye opener for me. It definitely worked. So, to answer your question, that's one of the, the you know the like you say the the topography, uh, the low spots, um, and those north facing slopes, and low spots with water. As I said, you can use some of the the, the wind and the thermals and such to eliminate um, stand locations, and, and you know I, I I've We'll say I've all but eliminated the low ones, but um, it takes the perfect scenario for me to get into a low stand, and usually it has to have water around it. Uh, water can get me, uh, can can do a lot, you know, get your scent where you want. It cools down the air around you, so it's going to pull those your thermals down to the stream and then, you know, right out, out with the, the flowing current almost, so it'll, your scent will stay right with the water type of deal. Okay. Um <laughs> I'm finding myself being pulled in like seven different directions at once. <laughs> I'm trying yeah, to. Yeah, my... sometimes you have to stop me because I get going. So just, no, this is just stop it's, it's perfect. That. It's it's perfect because you're you're laying down all the different <laughs> things I'm interested in. You're like kind of putting them out there for me. I'm just trying to pick, trying to choose which apple to pick off the tree. Um, so <laughs> one of the things I kind of struggle with sometimes is knowing how to like rank or prioritize wind direction versus the thermal and knowing like when one is going to trump the other and i think you kind of mentioned your threshold but i want to make sure i'm clear on this are you are you saying that if you have a wind direction of more than eight miles an hour or so that's probably going to trump a thermal effect so that in that case you wouldn't be so much worried about the thermal sucking you down if you had like 12 or 13 or 15 mile an hour wind blowing you in a, in a certain direction is that right or correct me on on that yeah, so to put it on when you have those, you know, those perfect crisp bluebird mornings, but not bluebird, but low wind, you know, there's just hardly any noise in the woods. So low low wind speed, um, thermals really come into play. But usually on those crisp, cool bluebird mornings, is I call those uh, light air days. You know, I call them heavier and lighter. But when you have that that high pressure. Your thermals, or your your scent, your thermals. I like to think of it. You know, we grew up in the north, and you know, when you go past people's homes in January, and they have a chimney, and the stovepipe comes out of the top of their roof, and they have a fire, and the stovepipe's like ten inches, and you ever see those the, the smoke out of those stovepipes, like keep a ten inch, or maybe just go out to twenty inches around, but just they just go straight up in the air for as almost as high as you can see. That says really light air days. It's nice beautiful high pressure days and your thermals are just going straight up so your scents almost like in that stovepipe it's just going straight up um those are the days that again that sixth sense that you can almost get away with just about anything 
but then when on the flip side, when you have those heavy air days, when everything's being pushed down to the ground, and you know you can again see those days. Just build a fire in your yard a few times, you know, a year, and watch what the smoke does. Um, you know, when your neighbors are, you know, four or five doors down coughing because you got you're, you're burning leaves in your yard. Those are heavy air days, and that's exactly what you're supposed to be doing. So, it's forced down, and those are the days that wind speed comes into play because if you're if those heavy air days are forcing your scent to the, you know, to stay within, you know, whatever 10, 15, 20 feet of your surface, then you need wind speed from a direction to move your scent where you need it to go. Hopefully, you know, your, your tree stands positioned to where, you know, you know, you're on the downwind side of wherever deer are going to walk and you need your scent to go that way. So you obviously need wind speed to push it there on those heavy air days. That makes sense. So, so high pressure days are when you're typically going to get those, that air blown up, pulling your scent up and out and away. So you can get away with a little more. And also we oftentimes hear the high pressure days are days that deer like to like to move a little bit more too. So that's kind of a a double positive there on the flip side. Right. You got the low pressure days, which usually are coming in with a front, like at the beginning of a front, right? You got a big storm front moving through or something. That's going to be what you're calling a a heavy air day. It's pushing things down. It's going to make things a little more difficult unless you do have the higher wind speed that's going to, as you said, push the wind where you need it, your scent where you need it. So that all, that all makes sense to me now, I think. Um, now, this yeah. is a slight pivot, but when it comes to wind speed and, and deer movement, do you see any certain um, you know, threshold of below this you know, speed, they tend to like it or don't like it, or above this speed, they like it or don't like it? Um, do, do you have anything there that you, that you like to key in on? Well, I think it, it varies regionally for the hunter. You know, you probably have a lot of listeners in upstate New York, you know, hunting big woods. Um, I, I, and I grew up in areas like that, and I've also hunted, you know, Iowa. So it definitely, in my opinion, varies regionally, and definitely topography has a lot to do with that. But in the big woods, when you have, you know, big, mature, you know, red oak and maple forest and stuff, and that wind speed picks up, and it stays a constant and those treetops are banging together and you have swirling winds because of the, the ridges in the valleys. Um, to me, deer tend to move less. Now on the flip side or, you know, on the other coin of that spectrum, and, and I've heard, you know, when you've had more jury on how he likes higher wind speed, but I think that has a lot to do with it's a constant. Uh, it's coming from a certain direction. They can feed and bed with their nose in a certain position to, to cover, you know, their backside. You know, deer is a, a prey animal. You know, it basically is just trying to do everything to stay alive. So that would make sense that if it's being a constant, that then they can always monitor that. But when it starts to swirl around and then you throw in the banging tops of trees and stuff that is now giving them another trigger to their ears, you know, to be alarmed to, um, I think it adds a little stress to them. And when they're stressed, they tend to move less. So... I, I think that would definitely depend on, you know, what part of the country you're hunting in. Uh, for me, you know, where I, where I'm hunting now, uh, you know, today was a perfect example. It was a high wind day and it was, you know, steady 12 to 16 or 17 and gusting, you know, 25, 30. And it, it was just the buck I saw, he was actually moving, you know, it was eight o'clock. It was actually before the wind really started to pick up heavy about you know, as the sun got higher, the wind, you know, obviously gained uh, speed and around 9, 930. I mean, it was just, it, you know, it was just a bunch of uh, nonsense, really. Uh, I just, it was just wasting my time. I didn't even see a doe. Huh. Um, 
Interesting. Let, let's go back to what you were talking about two seconds ago then, which was water. And you alluded to that was, you know, utilizing water as a as almost like a thermal pool was something that you, mm-hmm. you would, would think about in certain situations that would allow you to get away with hunting in like a low spot, in like a bottom or a creek bottom or something like that. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about how water impacts all this stuff, thermals, wind currents, et cetera, yeah. and then elaborate it- on how you use that? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's on an evening. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, I try to, I, I hunt is I hunt higher in topography as much as I can because obviously that's more constant. Um, but when you, you know you start talking to different bow hunters and stuff, especially early season, there's a lot of people that do a lot of evening hunts. It makes sense, you know, food to bed, and then in the evening that's when they do most of it. But um, topography to me plays a, a big role in that especially when you start dealing with older age class deer and i dawned on this or stumbled across it one yeah just watching deer from long distance i was watching a mature buck one time he kept coming out in a field before season so this is like uh mid-september you know feeding in the beans type of deal and he would come out in the same spot on a certain wind direction all the time almost religiously and he would never other deer would feed you know within you know, a couple hundred yards of him, but he stayed within a, a 30 or 40 yard circle. He would never really leave that circle. Um, and at the time he was either four or five year old. I, I can't remember, but <clears throat> what it was, was he was feeding eventually later. I figured this out. He was feeding, you know, obviously with his head down, his clover and it was on an evening, every evening. And, and he was basically in an area where all the, 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 the topography was pulling all the the his the scent from around him. The thermals were cooling down. He was in a low spot, and he just stayed in that low spot because he could feed with his nose, you know, head to the ground, nose to the ground, look up every now and again, but basically have all facets covered because he was in one of the lowest spots around him. And I was thinking about trying to get in there and hunt that deer, and he was where he was feeding was really close to his bedding area uh, where I assumed he was bedding, and. <clears throat> The only spot I could get into was if I walked a creek, a creek bottom up and it had some, it had water. When you get to, when I'm talking about the, the, the water temperatures is what does, causes this. And you've all probably, everybody has probably stood next to a stream and it's just always, you know, more chilly down. It's colder next to the water. Um, that has a, that, that's a positive for you. If you're trying to, you know, if your tree stands close to that water, then that, that cooler air temperature in and around that water, especially of an evening as thermals are falling, will will funnel your scent, you know, to the water and then whatever direction the water current's going, if your wind speed's not too high. And usually in the evening is when wind speed starts to die down. Again, that would that would not be the case if you had stronger wind speed, you know, forcing it your scent a certain direction. But if you had, you know, three, four, five miles an hour wind, uh, really colder temperatures in that water, and you could you can literally sit next to the stand I'm thinking about now I could take you there and you could sit next to it and feel the temperature difference. And I, you know, I was able to sneak up that creek bottom, um, you know, with the water in it, get out within, you know, five or six yards of the creek bank and, uh, you know, into the stand type of deal and, and shoot that deer. Um, he, you know, he, in his mind, I think he was, you know, as safe as he could be, but I just found that one little area where I could get in there, and, and him not be aware of my presence. And it was because of that stream for sure. 
Do you have anything like that when you're hunting near big bodies of water, like hunting next to a lake or a really large pond or anything? Is there any kind of weird current or thermal effect with that? Um, I, I don't know if I have ever thought about that. Yeah, I don't know if I have either. I've never really hunted next to a, a big lake. I have hunted closer to some ponds, but um, I would think just thinking about it, you know, it would have to be a bigger pond because I think the stagnant water, especially, they kind of hold heat like a swimming pool holds heat, but a stream, you know, moving water, especially in a mountainous region, is cold water, you know, where the trout live. That's really cold water type of deal. Um, I, it would make sense if it would definitely change it, but it might actually change in reverse. If there was a pond that would, you know, like a swimming pool, sometimes if you jump in, you know, you have an in-ground swimming pool, an air temperature of a morning or an evening is colder than the, the water temperature, you know, so the pool actually holds heat uh, sometimes, you know, depending on what's around it, I guess, and how much sunlight it gets. So there'll be a lot of variables there, but I can definitely see, it, you know, it'd be something worth looking into. I never really studied it. Hmm. So here's another thermal scenario I'm curious on your thoughts about. This is one I've heard some other guys talk about that hunt some hilly country, talking about um, what they call a thermal tunnel where basically you've got a situation where you have a – imagine a ridge, and you've got the wind blowing over the ridge, and you also, though, have a thermal rising. So we're going to say it's late in the morning or in the afternoon when the wind – or the, the thermals are coming from the bottom, coming up the ridge, but you have a wind direction that's coming from the opposite side of the ridge, and it's hitting that thermal, creating a, almost a tunnel effect. You've got thermal hitting a wind direction – Typically, I've heard about this being about three quarters of the way up the ridge line, and then this this kind of this spinning tunnel of, of wind. Supposedly, the theory being that this location, about three quarters of the way or two thirds of the way up a ridge, because of that effect, bucks sometimes like to run that height on the ridge, try to take advantage of that. Have you heard of that before? Or if if not, does that make sense? Have you seen anything like that? What do you think about that theory? Um, I have heard of that and I've heard it, I've heard it talked, uh, I've heard it talked a lot out west with the elk hunters. Um, but I've never, I guess I've never really played with it. I have heard of it. It does make sense, um, a little bit, but I think it would have to do with wind. It would have a lot to do with wind speed, um, depending on, you know, how much, uh, how much force was behind the wind, whether that would take effect or not. Yep. Okay. That makes sense. Um, does does any of this stuff with thermals matter when we're not in country with a bunch of ridges and hills? I mean, if I'm in flat as flat ground can be, let's say middle of Illinois or something like that, um, do, do you need to worry about this stuff as much? Sure. Uh, you know, just like today, you don't want uh, even you want your thermals on a rise, especially if you're hunting from a tree stand. Even even fifteen, you know, twenty feet can make a difference. If if you're in a tree stand twenty feet and you're a bow hunter, you know, hunting a specific deer trying to get them within a specific, you know, yardage. Um, you don't want your, your, you know, if you're expecting the deer and where I was, I would call it this morning, like close quarters. That's a good example. You know, if the deer continued on, he's going to end up, you know, 12, 13 yards, maybe even closer. So when, and when your thermals are, you know, going straight to the ground, I mean, he's basically a ground zero. You have to have everything right. Uh, so, yeah, topography or not, you know, if your thermals are going straight to the ground and you're expecting a deer to be that close, you know, if you want to shoot that deer, I would suggest shooting him before he gets that close because, you know, he may not smell you at 30 yards, but he's probably definitely going to smell you at 10. 
uh, you know, and turn inside out once he does, because he know, he's going to know he's right on top of you type of door, basically right underneath you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've heard you. But ref- yeah, but when. <laughs> so I was going to say that, that I've heard you talk about these kind of days like that, where you've got a, a low pressure, so a heavy air day that pushes your scent down. And if you don't have a lot of wind, you essentially create like a pool of scent around you um, that just kind of lingers there. And in the, the context of that situation, you were talking about if you've got a scenario like that and you're in the rut, you wouldn't hunt all day like many other people would say because you just are creating this scent pool. Is that right? Is that Did I hear that right? Do you avoid all day sits yeah, in a scenario like I'd- that? Yeah, I do. And, you know, that's funny doing the show scene. And, you know, I feel like in January when we're all out there doing shows, you talk to every deer hunter in North America. And I've always found it fascinating how many people sit from daylight to dark in the same tree stand at all different facets of weather. Uh, sometimes I would say that that's fine and probably would suggest it. But there are other times, especially those heavy air days, when I think just that, I think of myself as, like I said, I built fires. I think of myself as a fire constantly putting off smoke. And if I don't have wind speed and thermals taking my scent or that smoke in the direction where I want it to go, it is, I am just, you know, constantly saturating my area. Uh, I would just only imagine that it would just, con- you know, the pool of scent would just increase and get larger and larger and larger. You know, basically, it's, you know, 20 yard saturation from my stand, 30 yard, 40 yard, 50 yard. And eventually, if I've sat there, eight, nine, 10 hours. And I've not had wind speed to move, you know, to clean the area out type of deal. And I've had, you know, a low pressure day, heavy air day, and everything's just falling to the ground. I would, you know, and I've kind of tested that theory, not specifically set out to do it, but sat areas where I knew that was going on really good areas and have sat there and just not seen deer. Um, I guess the argument could be, well, you know, how do you know you would have seen deer if it was a, a better day? And I don't know that, but you know, you do that so often, so many times, the likelihood is if you go, you know, if you know the area and you know how many deer you have and you know what's going on around you, and if you're not seeing deer uh, in, on those types of days, the likelihood is, I would think, it really makes sense, knowing how well they smell, that it, that's probably why. Um, so those days, I definitely try to get to an area where I call it my dead zone, where I know that I try to get my scent to pull in an area where I don't expect any deer to be or come from, or I just I just chalk it up as if they get there, then it's it's it, um, you know I'm busted, and that's that's part of the game type of deal. Yeah. So we we talked about all these scenarios now where we're thinking about trying to manage where our scent is going, where our smoke is going, um, and so we've talked about ways that we can think about thermals to to our advantage. We've talked about ways that we can use wind direction to our advantage. Um, what about actual tools or products that can help us deal with this. So there's a, there's a bajillion different scent control products out there. Um, ozone sprays, cover scents, yada, yada, yada. From your experience thinking about this and and putting a lot of these things to the test, do any of those things work really well to combat some of the wind issues or is there anything that you recommend over another or thoughts on that in general? Um, well, I've never, I've never fooled with the ozonics and, and not because I'm a naysayer, basically because I just didn't really spend the, want to spend the money on, um, uh, I do keep all my clothes in scent-free tubs. Uh, you know, I wash them in scent-free detergent. I spray down, 
Um, sometimes I even put, you know, a little bit of cover sun on my boots type of deal. I keep my boots in separate tubs. I dress, you know, when I get out of my truck in the morning, I have a little mat. I stand on my dress. I go through all those. I think it makes sense. Um, I try to keep the, the foreign smells to as, as minimum as I can, but I rely more on trying to understand the wind direction and just keeping my scent from getting to their nose. I really feel like, you know, knowing how well they smell, um, I feel like if you're, no matter what you're doing, if your scent, you know, of a human gets to a deer's nose, they're going to know it. Now, how they react to it is the, you know, is the difference. Um, I've hunted urban areas, you know, in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, that are deer are just used to, to human smell. They're used to, you know, they're almost a different animal from some of the deer I grew up hunting in the big woods of Pennsylvania. Uh, so you can get away with some of that stuff. And I think even a step further, I think some deer just have different personalities. I've, you know, I don't know if I'd ever have a way of proving this, but I just saw some deer, older deer just didn't seem like they cared, you know, and then other deer, the littlest thing set them off. Um, just like some deer, uh, you know, last year I was hunting a buck that was a, a four and a five year old and he reacted so negatively to, you know, the grunt, the wheeze, or rattling antlers. I mean, literally, if I grunted at him, if I wheezed at him or rattled antlers at him, he turned around and ran the other direction. And he was one of the oldest deer on the farm and one of the biggest. Um, I think it was his personality. I don't, you know, I don't know what it is. Maybe he was beat up a lot as a kid. I don't know. Uh, you know, but it was an other deer. It just on the flip side, I've had two-year-olds you know, that come in all bristled up and just challenge you. So I do believe that they have personalities. Um, and I think some deer are more tolerant to things when they smell it. Some get curious. Um, I've had deer follow my scent trail, you know, to the tree where you would think they would turn around and run, and especially more so does than bucks. Uh, but they, they're very curious. They want to know, you know, what's going on over there. Where is this thing at that I'm smelling? I don't think they necessarily associate it with danger, but it's something that they want to investigate. I think time of year has a lot to do with it too. Um, you know, early season when they haven't been hunted or pressured, you know, throughout the summer, I think their guard may be uh, a lot lower on the, on their, you know, a lot further down on the scale of what they alert to. And then, you know, you enter into five or six weeks of bow season and followed by a gun season. And before you know it, like in Michigan or Pennsylvania, a million hunters have been in the woods. You know, they're just triggered by the smallest thing. So I think, Tommy, you know, late season is way different than the early season as far as a lot of those, those alarming factors, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've seen a lot of the same things there. Um, so, so further, I want to, I want to get your thoughts over there because for me, this whole topic of wind and understanding it, this is definitely one of those light bulb moments for me too. And I unfortunately hunted for like 18 years or something before I really started paying attention to wind the way I should have. I probably would have done a whole lot better as a teenager if I was uh, sharpen up on this. Um, but when I finally did, it, things start clicking. Now you're more of an adult onset hunter, late teenager onset hunter. Um, when you're hearing all this stuff from Ryan, wh where are your questions still at, or, or what are what aren't we covering that you that you're curious about? I mean, you've you've hit on a, on a ton of stuff, and you got to have like a notebook or something with all these <laughs> with all these specific <laughs> scenarios for yeah. different stands because I don't know how you keep this all straight. Um, but you know, I didn't start really thinking about thermals, Mark, until geez, it, it was probably on your elk hunt couple of years ago um when we were talking about strategy and where we wanted to be in the morning and in the afternoon and, and then i kind of started thinking about that for deer hunting but definitely not to the level that i should be and i'm kind of having aha moments right now talking with you ryan 
um, about the place we hunted in Ohio. Um, there's just so many different scenarios that you're talking about. Like, oh, that's why that buck did that, or that's why that doe, you know, winded me there, or you know, even the buck that I shot last year, um, he came in right where he should have, and I had a perfect wind, but he knew something was up. And I'm just kind of, I want to go back and look at uh, historical weather data because I think it was a calm day. And, uh, you know, just thinking right now, it, he could have very well, you know, caught my scent just because of the thermals. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's like fascinating stuff. Um, one thing I wanted to touch on, um, Mark, you kind of asked my question about, uh, you know, us flatlanders here and like, you know, where I'm hunting in southeast Michigan, we don't have a ton of topography. Um, you know, other than water, Ryan, are there any like other sort of natural features um, in, in flatter areas that, that could have an effect on, you know, your thermals or the, the wind current? What are those kind of things that you're looking uh, for in, in the flat areas? In flat, I mean, it could be any structure in the flat areas. You know, I, you know, I know what you're talking about. Um, those islands of trees uh, could definitely uh, alter wind, uh, wind current, um, air current, if you will. You know, so if you got a big, you know, you're talking about, you know, some of the ag, ag areas where you have, you know, a 200-acre cornfield and then, a, you know, a 10-acre stand of oaks or, you know, what have you. Um, those areas could definitely alter the wind, the air current, uh, for sure. So any structure, anything that is rising above the earth's surface um, and would allow, you know, just like water, if you were to spray, if you were, you know, had a giant hose and were stand back and spray water on it, you know, what, you know, however it would deflect or reflect that water you know whatever could do that to the air would you know will in fact do it the, the difference being out there is it's only going to do it for a little bit of time uh, what i mean is like if it would deflect or, or you know deflect, uh, deflect the, the the air it would get back to its normal course rather quickly because it's not bouncing off of you know five different things like in, in a region of of high topography if that makes sense yeah, 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 I got you. Cool. So, if if do you have a follow up question, Josh, or should I pivot to another question? No, I, I think I, I think I'm good there. I, you know, I, I think I'm good. I just need to I need to spend more time building fires and, and tree stands. <laughs> Please don't do that on any of the farms <laughs> uh, I Mark. hunt during the season. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll get in there and start a fire to let you know yeah, how to go. Yeah, you have to have a lot of time, and that's all stuff I did, you know, before I had any sense of responsibility. <laughs> as, uh, as as my mom used to say at the time, you know, she would just shake her head all, all the amount of time I was wasting trying to figure out how to shoot a deer, you know, and then she would say, oh, why do you think these things are so smart? I hit them in my car all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I hate that when they say that kind of thing. It's not quite that easy to do. Um, so speaking of how it's not quite so easy, here's the... Here's the crux of the deal, though. I feel like for a lot of guys, when we start targeting these mature deer, uh, one of these big first aha moments for a lot of us is understanding, oh, wow, the wind is really important because deer have these incredible noses, and we got to make sure they don't smell us. So step one is figuring out how to try to keep deer from smelling us. Step two seems to be, though, how do you understand how a mature buck uses the wind to his advantage? Because, right, that seems to happen a lot. And then... With that knowledge, how do you hunt him? So how do you manage to keep this buck from smelling you, but also be in the place where he wants to be because of the wind that he's trying to use to his advantage? That's like the mm -hmm. the crux of the whole deal. Can you talk about, right. I guess, the first step being how you see 
mature deer using the wind? Are there any consistent things like mature bucks tend to want the wind doing X or when they're going to bed, they tend to Y or anything like that as far as how you see mature bucks tending to want to use the wind or use terrain to take advantage of wind? Yeah. Um, and again, I, I, I can never say never, right? Because there's almost a never, you know, how that works. It's just, yeah. uh, there's always something, you know, that's going to throw a variable there. So I'll say this, when we say mature deer, you know, it's all in the out beholder. Some mature deer are three, some don't call mature, uh, mature deer until they're five. Um, and I think with it, each age class, each extra year they have from three on, they gain just a little more knowledge. But on the flip side, I think the older they get, the less they move, too. So let's say older from after they start getting five, in my experience, I've noticed that their home ranges become smaller, their core ranges, core areas, um, and they move less but more deliberate. So for the most part, I like to say, you know, and again, there's always somebody out there, oh, no, I remember this one time. Yeah, you know, anything can happen in the wild. But for the most part, in my experiences, um, the mature deer, older age class deer tend to move I think they like to move with the wind quartering at their rear. So basically, if you think of, you know, the, 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 the cone shape, um, when it gets to their nose, if it's quartering to their rear, like they, that gives them the biggest sense of security with their nose. And then they obviously can see what's in front of them. And how I used to study this, um, and that's actually how Barry and Gene did this back in the seventies. Uh, they, they cued me onto this, but um, it should be late season or in the wintertime. And again, Pennsylvania, we had plenty of snow in Michigan. You could do this, but, um, I would purposely walk around and try to jump a mature buck in its bed. Right. And then track it backwards. Um, so when I knew it entered its bed undisturbed, um, and then followed its hoof prints in reverse and saw how they maneuvered from wherever they came from feed or use this ridge line to get to here and this, that, and the other. And, and how they use, you know, how the wind was blowing that day. So there's a ton of information to be learned from their tracks. And if you have a compass and under, you know, know what the wind did that day or the day before, uh, and how they use the wind to get to where they, where they were going to the deal. And it was really, I learned probably more on that with mature buck mood doing, you know, that type of deal. And I did that for, I still do that. That's, you know, it's kind of like my early, shed hunting if i get out in you know january february type of deal but you know purposely looking for even if i don't jump a buck i you know you can tend to see a buck bed over a doe bed uh, if it may be a little bit bigger some of the, the urine marks in the snow and stuff um i just track them backwards just to see how they were moving um younger bucks you know the year and a half and the two and a half they seem to be very you know, sporadic just kind of all over the place like you know and i equated to people humans if you will like a year and a half old buck, I kind of equate to like a, a 13 year old boy to a 19 year old boy. I mean, think of how active you were in that time frame. And then a two year old buck, a two and a half year old buck would be like a 20 to 30. You're still pretty active. You know, you still have that immature-ness to you, but you still, you know, kind of settled in your ways a little bit. And then obviously 30 and 40, you're just getting more set on your ways. You tend to move less, you know, you don't go to the gym as much. You're getting heavier. Um, and 40, you know, 40 to 50 would be your four and a half year olds, you know, same type of thing. And then I noticed their core areas getting smaller. I noticed their bedding areas becoming closer, closer together. I didn't notice they bedded in different areas. I was really surprised one buck in particular, um, 
and he did this for a couple of years in a row. He bedded right next to the highway. Uh, and he tended to only do it in gun season. And I only, it was in Pennsylvania, and I only, it was, he was a, literally at the time, you know, would have been a really nice buck. I mean, nice buck anytime, but then there wasn't a lot, you know, it was, uh, he was an 11 point, like, I don't know, probably right at 140. And I had killed a buck with my bow that season. And, um, you know, you, you get one buck in Pennsylvania, you're done type of deal. So I was, you know, sitting the bench in gun season. And I actually was, you know, just out riding around the first morning of gun season, like opening day of gun season and PA is a huge deal. And it was just like right at daylight. And I actually caught this buck going into his bedding area. I watched, I watched him bed down, snow on, I could see him. And uh, I rode past him four days in a row. He was still laying in the same spot. I never, I mean, obviously he probably got up at nighttime, but he went back there to bed four days in a row. And then on the last Saturday, our gun season's two weeks, he was still there on the last Saturday. So he had found that little spot and I never saw him there again ever after that. And then the following year, I purposely went and watched for that deer just to see. And there was actually, it was in a pretty high pressured area. And lo and behold, that buck a year later was bedding in that same area. So it was fascinating to me how he had found, you know, literally I'm talking like a half an acre, this dude bedding on with the highway to his back. And he just, you know, looked down through the woods type of deal. And it was like almost in a little triangled area. Um, and, you know, he just found a place to be safe. And I don't know if any hunter killed him because I knew some of the hunters in that area. And I can only imagine that, that he probably got, I bet he ended up getting hit by a car um, because a lot of deer get hit there, you know, after they would have shed or, or stuff like that. And it was crazy to me how he knew that that road could keep him so safe. Yet it, it was probably what ended up killing him because I don't think a hunter killed him. I, I would have. I lived right there. I was uh, sure enough had heard about it. But anyway, um, I learned all that. You know, I would go in there and follow his tracks and see how they moved and such. That's a great way to do it. That that's uh, it's it's so hard to tell what a buck is thinking or or factoring into his movements if you're just like seeing him and at point now, like if you show him show up, he he pops out into a field. And if you try to make assumptions about how he got there, it's it's really easy to make the wrong assumption without doing what you just said, actually backtracking. Like that's such a smart way to do it. And obviously you can't do that during hunting season without probably blowing things out uh, to some degree. But that's a really smart idea to do that in the postseason and, and, and be able to take those lessons learned and apply them to the future year. Um, and that's probably why I'm such a poor shed hunter because I end up doing more of that type of stuff than looking for sheds. But you know, back to each deer has its own individual personality. And, you know, back to, for the majority of hunters out there, if you're not hunting a specific deer to do that to, it's still beneficial to you to know how deer move and just play those odds. You know, the, the deer you may be hunting may or may not be doing that, you know, but that's okay. If you're, you're still adding, you're stacking the odds in your favor. So, you know, if you're, if you can, and, it, and again, those aha moments when you, it sounds like a lot, I'm sure to your listeners, you know, that aren't versed in this, they're like, oh my God, this is way too much information. I'm never hunting again. This is crazy. <laughs> it does sound like a lot. I get that. But if you just start like thinking about it a little bit and piecing it together and, you know, the next time you're on piece a little more, the next season, it's a little more, then all of a sudden it does click and, and you're understanding, you can look at the weather station and you see the wind direction and you know, from past experiences you know, what this, you know, whatever stand you have on this north ridge of a morning works well, why? And, you know, you can position, you know, you know which way the deer are going to be using that ridge because historically, you know, traditionally speaking, deer, older age class bucks tend to move this direction. If they come the other way, then that's okay too. But, 
you know, you, you, it's all about stacking those odds in your favor, especially if you don't have a specific farm that you can hunt in and you're out and, and you're not hunting specific deer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is definitely one of those advanced topics that, uh, that we're getting here. We're, we're diving definitely, deep in yeah. the weeds. So if, if you are new, do not feel bad if this is like, whoa, this is a whole lot of crap. Uh, at, the, at the very basic level, you know, start kind of where you said, right. Um, this is one of those things that as you dive deeper and deeper and deeper, that's when it's okay to start thinking about things to this degree. Um, do not feel bad for being a little overwhelmed if, if you're, if you're new. Uh, that said though, we're going to continue going down the advanced path for those who are at that point in their hunting journey. So if we're thinking that the deer, as you described in some way or another, are using wind in their favor to move. The issue I you know, always think about that is, okay, if, if, I, if I'm expecting this deer to come to where I'm standing, like if that's what I'm hoping for, right, where I'm sitting in a tree, I'm hoping he's going to come here. But if that happens, and if we believe that a buck is usually going to be moving with the wind some way in his favor so he can understand what's happening to some degree, many times that means that he's going to have the wind blowing towards him, possibly from where I am. Although I guess the snare you painted is a little bit more rear and quartering so maybe you can get away with what i'm going to describe a little bit better what i'm what i'm basically trying to get at is can you talk to me about how you think about setting up in situations where the deer has the wind in their favor but you also have the wind in your favor um can you describe how you think about that and and lay out how that might work so this is where it gets this can get into you know the really advanced level and off into the weeds but i there's two there's two ways I hunt like if I'm going into there's two different scenarios I can and I know what you're saying but if I'm hunting a specific deer like I was this morning or not really hunting that deer but in that scenario a deer I know on a farm I know well and I'm probably not going to shoot any other deer than than that type of deer I almost want I I try to position myself where my wind is almost wrong if that makes sense um because that when I know how the deer are using the terrain to get from point A to point B and what they're doing, and uh, let me rewind a little bit, time of year plays a big role in that as well. I'm speaking, specifically speaking, you know, from the middle of October to 1st of December. So not not this two weeks of rut, but when those deer are up on their feet, you know, trying to find a girlfriend type of deal for the most part. So they're, they're covering as much ground they can, you know, while they're on their feet and they're using their nose to do it. You know, they're, they're, if they're an older deer, they tend to be lazy and they're trying to cover as much ground they can to find a receptive doe as quickly as they can and get with that doe and then, you know, enter the lockdown phase or whatever. But so how, how in, in my mind, I don't want my wind almost wrong. So almost paralleling. Like it's, it's, it's real close to being wrong, but so close to being like, you're never going to get it better for getting those deer, you know, inside of that 20 yard line and, and rewind. I stumbled on that is there was, I still do. I hunt with a recurve some, but there was five or six years where I specifically hunted with a recurve. So again, I took that, you know, my 50 yard uh, range limit from a compound down to 20 yards with a recurve. So you just got to figure those those spots out. And then also not only the wind direction being on this wrong, but the perfect spot, you know, being a really narrow funnel where you almost kind of have them pinned in there, you know, type of deal. Like when they're there, you've got the wind in your favor and they're inside of your wheelhouse and they have no idea that they just, just walked right into the trap type of deal. Um, that's the perfect scenario, but that's for somebody again, hunting a very specific deer, probably with history with it and knows the ground really well 
you know, understands how the wind moves around the ground and such. Um, for the most part, when I get asked that question or if I'm explaining to people like, no, you know, the different way is you're hunting an age class of deer, not a specific deer. So let's just say some of your listeners just want to hunt an older age class deer. So let's just say, you know, we're just looking for two-year-old deer. You know, we want to kill a nice buck type of deal. Then what I'm trying to do is position myself to where if in my scouting missions or when I'm looking at top-down maps, I'm trying to identify those areas that are going to hold high numbers of deer, you know, does and fawns and such. And then I'm going to look for those key areas, that those transition areas that, that or those hogbacks or funnels or whatever it may be that connect those areas. So you got a, a, a bedding area, some call them over here, and you have another one over here. Well, how do they get from there to there? And then I want to look at how can I get to, you know, in between those areas, the most undetectable, and by most undetectable, not walking through their way, but also take it a step further. I don't, I think we do a lot of hunters mess up by walking to that perfect spot within mind that they're going to hunt the perfect wind. But while they were walking there, their scent was blind to the area that they're expecting the deer to come from. You know, as well as deer smell, I know a lot of people that nudge deer just with scent only, you know, especially out west. Uh, Montana, Wyoming, I know guys that do deer nudges, if you will, from a half mile away, just using their scent, they'll run deer out of blocks of timber just by letting their, their scent drift into a block of timber. So it's one thing to say, okay, I'm in X tree stand and I've got everything set in my favor. I expect the deer, you know, to be to the north of me, moving from east to west. The wind is only the northwest, so my scent's going to the southeast. And this is the perfect transition point between those two spots, but yet they parked you know, whatever, 300 yards from that, that, that area. And that they walk to their stand with the wind blowing right into that area. So you have, I think it's just as important to keep in mind entering and exiting with the wind in your favor, as well as hunting it in your favor. So again, when you're just hunting an age class of deer in that, you know, five or six week time frame when they're going to be on their feet the most in their life throughout that year, you want to find those those areas that they're going to use their nose to check uh, for receptive does and find those transition points in between those hogbacks and those funnels that connect those areas, those little drainages, those little, just those little things, you know, where they narrow down, where you know they're going to walk through. And, and you can even manipulate that. I've, you know, I've, I've cut trees down and, and, and I've even built snow fence, uh, you know, that only snow fence, they sell at Lowe's. You can alter movement with that uh, on a big ridge line. Um, you know, I've, I've strung that stuff up throughout the woods and, and, you know, at an angle, you don't want it on a 90, but at an angle, just like if you were to dump water on it, you know, you want it to go a certain way, uh, deer would come across that and they would get to that, that orange snow fence. It's only like 37 or 30 inches high, 27 inches high. They don't jump over. It's amazing to me They they, they come to it and then they just follow it, you know, like whenever at the angle you have it on and. And you stop at like 18 yards in front of your stand type of snow, and there they are. Um, and you know, maybe check your laws, but I know I did that in Iowa one time, and it's not illegal to do it. There's only a 60 yard snow fence, but it altered their movement. Um, so you can do that. And you know, you, you, when you're, I was hunting with a recurve, so I needed them, you know, in that, that 20 yard range type of deal. So to reiterate, there's two, two different styles that I hunt. If I'm hunting a specific deer, you know, I'm really getting advanced level there. You know, I'm going to try to almost have, if I think that it, he's doing most of his moving with the wind, you know, quartering to him a little bit, 
and again, time of year have a lot to do with that. If he's, if he's, if it's the heat of the moment, like, you know, those two weeks in November or end of October and in November up until Thanksgiving, then I would tend to think they'd probably move with a little bit more of the wind in there, using their nose to get around rather than trying to stay alive. Their focus has changed just a little bit from that, that prey animal where they know things are trying to kill them. They want to stay alive. That's my best way of doing that too. I'm trying to breed and, you know, sire young type of deal. So, uh, that movement can change a little bit, but I still I still use the wind just where you know it's, it's a very touchy wind right there. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's hard to explain. I don't, I don't know if I'm doing a good job of it. No, you are. You are. Um, I wanna I wanna throw an example out at you of my own situation and kind of hear um, what you think about some of my ideas on this or kind of putting what you're talking to into into action so i've got this deer i've been hunting forever everyone knows i've been talking about this stupid deer forever we'll uh we'll call him h and i've got a spot on the edge of one of the main bedding areas he hangs out and that's that's to the west of me or sorry to the east of me and i can't hunt in there because it's on the neighboring landowners so we often though have westerly winds blowing from my side of the line into the bedding area where he's at I've always assumed, though, and based on pictures in the past, he most often comes out to my side of the line when we've got those kinds of winds because, as you were talking about, he wants to have like a southwest or northwest or west wind where he can see what he's getting or smell what he's getting himself into. He's trying to use that, usually quartering to, and to some degree, when he's going to come out to feed or check does or whatever in this area where there's, there's a food source that a lot of does come to. But I have also historically hunted this area a decent bit now over the past three years trying to kill this deer. So I've always thought I can't hunt there with a due west wind because it blows like right into that stuff. Um, but I've always, always, the one time I've tried, or when I try to hunt him is usually when there's like a northwest wind or maybe a southwest wind because I kind of, as you alluded to, I think I can maybe cut the corners there. Um, hoping that he's more west of me, or sorry, more east of me, so that I'll I'll go kind of angled beneath him. He'll still want to come out that way because he's got a quartering wind. It's in his favor. My hope being that the wind angle will be just enough off of that where he's coming from that I'll slip past him. So that's usually the scenario I try hunting it in. Um, so that's what I've done in the past. Sometimes, though, deer end up still catching my wind because I am blowing in the general direction of the bedding, cutting the, the bottom of it. So I've gotten blown out a handful of times doing that. And I'm almost, <clears throat> excuse me, always kicking myself like, ah, shoot, I shouldn't have done that. Um, he never showed up probably cause I spooked some does and alarmed the whole area. <clears throat> Man, can't talk. But going back to something you mentioned at the beginning, thermals and pressure, I'm wondering if I might be able to better get away with this kind of scenario, if I'm in a situation where I have one of those light wind days, where I have a high pressure day that's pulling up my air. So maybe I hunt this when I have that kind of quartering wind, so like a northwest wind that's just off of where I think he is. But I might be able to get away with it even better if I waited for that scenario with the high pressure that's kind of pushing my wind up on maybe that kind of lightish wind day. Um, is my way of thinking through this, the way you envision people thinking how to make these decisions, factoring in thermals, pressure, wind, and how deer use all that? Yeah, but when I think of it, I, I don't think I don't think like the everyday bow hunter, deer hunter goes into it like that. I think, you know, wind and thermals, or you could probably take thermals and air currents out of the equation. It's just when you talk 101, and how I think most people think of it is wind and 
more so wind direction. Um, what you're explaining, I think, is a very advanced level, and I think you know you're probably on to something there. If you, you know, again, those high pressure days, light air days, um, definitely give you the advantage. And then I think that quartering wind, if you know, just almost that wrong wind, as long as it's as long as you know it's not going somewhere and hitting something and eddying back into the area where you think's holding that deer, you know, I think that's probably your best bet. But I, I, you know, I'd be I'd check on that first to make sure. You know, you'd somehow inadvertently your sense not entering that deer's uh, bedding area, even when you think you have the wind direction nailed down. Yeah. But to answer your question is, yes, how you're looking at it, I think is a very advanced level. I think it's the correct way to do it. Um, but I think probably most deer hunters, you know, the you know the 101 version is just you know the wind's coming out of the north. And I want deer north of me, so I want you know my scent to the south. That type of deal. Mm-hmm. It's very basic. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great place to start. Yes, absolutely. Um, One final thing on the wind side of things that we haven't touched on is when it comes to all this stuff, does any of this change if you're hunting in a ground blind or a box blind versus a tree stand? Um, Necessarily change. I I found in a ground blind that it seems to be (laughs) – they're just more in tune, I think, because – Maybe it's because if my thermals are going up, I'm on the ground. So, you know, I'm down on their level and then, you know, quite on the, on the flip side of an evening. If I'm at a ground blind, it's usually on a food plot, so then it usually is an evening in the early season. And um, I just find deer, when I'm on the ground at their level of an evening, when I know the thermals are coming down, I just feel like they're at high alert all the time. Let's um, say I haven't had luck. I've, I've had, you know, instances in luck where it, what they weren't alarmed, but um it's i think it definitely gets trickier in a ground blind depending on the situation you know close quarters i like to call it if you're in somewhere tight and expecting them to be close to you um you know you 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 have to take in a lot of consideration to your scent and then also the noise that you make inside of it um i've not had i've hunted out of the the tower blinds in texas um but i don't have a whole lot of experience out of them i basically hunt uh lock-ons uh everywhere else lock-ons and ladder stands yeah do you do you think that any of these things when it comes to how you're thinking about wind do you think any of this is different in a public land or heavily pressured area versus big private property that's well managed and very little hunting pressure do you see any of this do you would you think about it differently at all in those two scenarios i don't necessarily I don't know if i'd think about it differently I, you know i think if the more information you're armed with again stacking those odds in your favor is a benefit um i think being able to apply a lot of the you know this type of thought process on public land uh is more difficult to do just because you probably don't have history with the animals you're trying to hunt um you may not have as much knowledge of the topography because you know most public lands are pretty big areas uh, the pressure factor goes up. So I think the deer are definitely, you know, they may move less. They're, very, you know, probably more on high alert depending on pressure. So it just makes it more difficult to apply. But if you do understand it and can apply it, it again, you're putting those odds in your favor for sure. Um, but, you know, I hunted a lot of public land, you know, and honestly back in the day when I, you know, when I was just, you know, late teens, early 20s, and I, I didn't even have a tree stand. I did a lot of hunting off the ground. I did a lot of steel hunting. Um, when the weather was right for it, or, you know, if it was, I did a lot of bow hunting in the rain and a rainstorm and just, I would just sneak around and check on different areas. And I've shot a lot of deer off the ground, 
Um, and you learn a lot when you get in close quarters like that. You know, scenarios tend to play themselves out more because you have a bow and you're on the ground and, you know, for whatever reason, you couldn't get a shot off or this, that, and the other. So just the simple fact that you're there and experiencing it and the scenario is playing out, um, whereas if you were a gun hunter or, you know, maybe you weren't even there, you, you know, you didn't learn anything from it. Uh, so just the fact that, you know, you put yourself in those situations, you get to learn from it. Um, I think access is the hardest thing on public land, especially, you know, when I was hunting a lot of public land, a lot of it was really hard to get to. And, you know, you worked your butt off, you know, to get to it, you were tired by the time you got there type of deal. And then, you, you know, you had to hunt all day, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, change your clothes and, you know, this, that, and the other. So it's definitely a, a unique set of challenges for sure. Yeah. And I know that, I know that access entry and exit and all that is something that, that you really focus on as, as an important part of your hunting strategy when you're targeting mature deer. Um, and you alluded to it a little bit earlier when you said you want to make sure your wind's not blowing into areas you think the deer are going to be when you're coming in and out. Um, can you, can you give us some more detail into what you think about when it comes to accessing and exiting properties and, and any like the more advanced ways that you go about trying to get a good entry and exit? Yeah. Um, you know, when I go in and set up a property or a new property type of deal, uh, you know, I look at the top of maps and you do some boots on the ground stuff and, you know, the, the late winter, early spring. So you're looking at old sign and, you know, you're, you're seeing where everything kind of comes together and where you need to be. And, you know, you put an X on the map type of deal or drop a pin and then, you know, you look at the parking areas, even if it's private ground, you still have areas where you, you can park type of deal. And then you figure out the best ways in there. Um, so just as you're looking for that stand location, I think it's in the late winter, it's just as important to look for those areas where you think deer are going to feed come the upcoming bow season and where they're going to, you know, bed the upcoming bow season. So where they're at, where they're going to be coming from and where they're going to be going to. And then you, so you have, okay, this, you know, you find an area that's tore up with sign rubs and scrapes and, you know, inside edges and, you know, has everything. Uh, then you want to ask yourself, well, I know the deer were here. They laid down all the sign. Where did they come from? So then you need to find, okay. And you need, you know, late winter, you're looking at tracks, you know, and you're following backwards and you find a couple thickets here and there or hillsides. And, you know, it may be, you know, probably that time of year, it's a south facing slope to catch the morning sun and, and that type of deal. And then you look at all that, so you, you have on your map, you know where you want to hunt, you know where you think the majority of the deer are coming from, um, and even where they're going to go if they're past you, type, you know, once they passed you. And, okay, then here's where I park. Now how can I get there, you know, on a predominant, in my areas, you know, the, the predominant winds are south, southwest, to west. Uh, you get a lot of northerly winds in, in late October, early November. So I'm going to park only a couple specific areas, no matter what, usually even, you know, the most private farm, you know, you probably only have a couple specific parking areas. And sometimes you just got to walk way out of your way. You know, you may have to walk down a, a dried up stream bed or down the, the hard top road. I've done that a lot. You know, one of the neighbors where I hunt, he thinks I'm crazy. He wants me, you know, me park my truck at the barn. And, you know, I walk, you know, between a quarter and a half a mile down the road past his house and enter the woods above his house and, you know, he's like, what are you doing? You know, type of deal. But, you know, then I get into a drainage and, you know, I sneak my way into a stand. It makes all the difference in the world, you know, where, and when you start doing that stuff and paying attention to entering and uh, leaving a stand site undisturbed, hunting undisturbed deer, your deer sighting, I'm not just talking buck sightings, but 
you know, when you go into a stand, like you specifically, when, when you were going into a stand, not paying attention to that stuff, and you see two, three, four deer, and it was a good set, and everything was good, and, you know, you were happy type of deal, and then you really start paying attention to those little details, and where you used to see, you know, two or three or four deer, now you're seeing eight, nine, ten, and three of them were bucks, and one of them was a big shooter, and none of them, the, the most important part, none of them knew you were there. Um, you know, that's when it really gives you a really cool feeling. Uh, when to me, it's when you know it's not to me. It's that whole romance to hunting is you know why we hunt. Um, I really really enjoy that part of it. You know, I don't want to say as much or more than the killing part because at the end of the day we're all hunters and you know we want to hold those big antlers at the end of the day. But there's something about having deer you know parade past you, knowing where they come from, why they were where they were, you know how they got to 15 yards in front of you and then on by you and had no you know clue in their mind that you were there hunting them because everything was right uh and you specifically manipulated it to be that way there's really something to be said to that that i think really uh you know it, it, it really a lot of people are missing out on it. it's too much about the yeah i just got to go kill a buck it doesn't matter why or how or where you know and, and yeah you kill the buck and it feels good for a while but whenever you really start piecing it together that whole you know, that learning experience or the, the apprenticeship program, if you will, and, and you become a journeyman is just, oh, it's a really cool feeling. And I guess it's a sense of, of satisfaction, if you will, like anything, you know, you put your, your work into, you feel better about type of deal, but I really enjoy that. Oh, yeah. That, that the chess match, all of the work that goes into that, that makes, you know, every time you see the antlers on the wall or every time you take a bite out of that animal, when you have a meal, it all makes all those things so much, so much sweeter when you know just the level of understanding that was required to get to that point, the level of work that was required to get to that point, the level of, of frustration and failure probably leading up to those successes. Uh, man, it makes it all a whole lot more meaningful when you have to go through that to get to your end goal. Yeah, and it's it's such a hard thing to explain, you know, to the non-hunters or people that may just be, you know, they hunt a little bit, you know, they don't understand, you know, but it's like anything else and you start, you know, pouring your heart into it, um, you know, there, it's definitely, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, being outdoors and enjoying all that. You learn a lot of, of good life lessons out there too, type of deal. Oh, but yeah. yeah, it's just really cool. It is. Mm -hmm. It is. So, so speaking of this kind of process though, like getting to the point where we're like you and I are at maybe where we really want that difficult challenge, um, and, and figuring out all the details, but also there are some people that are at the beginning of that journey where just trying to find any deer, um, it would be an incredible challenge to surmount. Now I'm about to shift topics here, but before I do that, I want to take one last break today and thank our partners at Whitetail Properties. And speaking of new hunters, Whitetail Properties puts out a series of YouTube videos. They call it their Land Beat video series. I've been mentioning it every other week here. They've got a new video out that I think new hunters especially, or really anyone interested in becoming a better deer hunter, might be of interest to you. This one dives into trail camera tactics, which trail cameras are one of those most incredible and useful tools for a deer hunter you can learn so much about deer behavior about what specific deer are doing or just how deer use a property whether that be a mature buck or does or young deer whatever it is that you want to target 
cameras can help you do that. So this quick video covers some of the basics, including when to hang them, where to hang them, and a bunch of things along those lines. Very simply, if you go to the Whitetail Properties YouTube channel, you will see it's the most recent land beat video. It's called Trail Camera Tactics. Check it out. And if you'd like to learn more about Whitetail Properties and the properties they have for sale, you can visit whitetailproperties.com. Um, talking about new hunters, I know, and I'm kind of shifting here to a totally different topic, but I do know that both you and Furter, with what you guys are doing with the QDMA, are really focusing on hunter recruitment, trying to help bring new people into the fold. And before we go too much longer with the podcast, I want to make sure we get to touch on that a little bit. Is that something you can can talk about a little bit, what you guys are up to? Yeah. Um, you know, part of, you know, like I said in the beginning of the podcast, I'm really fortunate to work in the industry, you know, revolving around the whitetail deer because that's just basically have been my life. Um, and, you know, we're at a point right now with, with the QDMA and, and, you know, a lot of the other nonprofit uh, conservation organizations out there. I mean, we're specifically focused on whitetail deer, but um, as they're the number one sought after big game animal in the country, you know, and you start looking at, the business behind that, if you will, you know, there's a whole business side of that and how much money the whitetail, whitetail deer generates and how conservation's funded through, which I know you're aware of the Pittman Robinson act and such. Um, you know, the hunter recruitment rate is in a decline. And in the last you know 10 years, we've lost about 30% of the licensed buyers. And, you know, that starts to equate to dollars and cents. And then obviously you have a snowball effect, um, you know, when state agencies have to make cutbacks and, and, you know, so forth, and there's the big public land moving out there and, and license sales, you know, are a driving force behind that as well. So, you know, a lot of the, the nonprofit conservation organizations are doing everything they can to, you know, try to, you know, turn around the hunter recruitment rate, at least slow the decline down. Um, like I said, we've lost 30% in the last 10 years. Um, you know, that's, that's alarming in, in and of itself. Uh, to think that, as passionate as I am about, you know, whitetail deer hunting or hunting in general, um, it's all I've ever done in my life has been a hunter. Uh, it's it, literally all I've ever done. I couldn't imagine, you know, I don't know what I would do, you know, if I didn't have hunting in my life. And I mean that when I say, what would I do in November? I don't know, you know. Like, um, so to think that this could potentially go away, I mean, again, there's a lot of statistics out there and, and we're not trying to, you know, be the skies falling type, but at the end of the day, you know, we've lost, you know, a good amount of hunters in the last 10 years. Uh, the average age of the licensed buyer right now is somewhere around 56 years old. And, and all research says there's a hard stop at 70. So, you know, there, technically speaking or arguably speaking, there's a shelf life to hunting as we know it. It's not that it would ever go away, but in the next, you know, 12 to 15 years, you can see a drastic cut um, in funding for, you know, this resource that we love to to, to chase around and cherish type of deal. So, you know, we're doing, we've really shifted our focus. The first, you know, we're, we're in our 30th year, the first 15 or 20 years, we were very big in the habitat and herd management and overall, you know, the whitetail deer, you know, health of the herd type of deal and then the habitat. Um, and now it's, you know, the deer are going to be okay. We got to have people there to hunt them type of deal. So we're really uh, focused on, the youth, we have a, a big youth involvement, but probably more so are the first time adult onset hunters. I think you mentioned that uh, you talked, you called Josh that earlier in the podcast. But, you know, we found through research that 
taking a, a kid hunting is great, and we always have to continue to do that. The problem is, or the catch is, if, if you take, you know, a, a young person hunting today and they want to hunt tomorrow and you're not available, then what do they do? You know, they're, they're stuck sitting on a bench. Uh, they don't have a job. So they can't go out and buy stuff. They can't drive themselves to the hunting property or, you know, to state land, whatever it may be. So, you know, we've shifted focus, and we, among other uh, conservation organizations, shifted focus over to the adult onset uh, the first time, mid 30, mid 40, something that have always had the desire, but maybe nobody's ever taught them or asked them to go. Uh, and just as we were talking earlier, you know, if you have the desire, you're 35 or 38 years old, sitting in a cubicle somewhere, you know, have always been interested in hunting, but just never had anybody really around you to take in. It's intimidating to try to do yourself. And it's, it's even more so intimidating, you know, to uh, maybe ask one of your buddies, you know, at 40 years old, hey, you mind teaching me how to hunt? You know, like, it's not a very monster thing to do type of deal. So, uh, you know, we're we're putting some programs out there. We have a our sharing your hunt program, um, where uh, field to fork program, where we're trying to get more people involved in hunting. I'm actually leaving for one in the morning. Uh, it's in north central Pennsylvania. We have six first time adult hunters coming into camp. Um, we're going to hunt Friday and Saturday, two sets a day, morning and evening. Um, we brought them in back in August and went through a training day with crossbows. I mean, we teach them deer biology. We do some habitat management, you know, everything there is to know about a deer. We teach them how to shoot and we're going to take them hunting. We're going to teach them how to butcher deer. And the idea is they want to be hunters. You know, they want to source their own protein and, and sustainability. And we want to hopefully give them enough knowledge to do that, you know, within a few meetings with us. So it is definitely a process but it's definitely something we're extremely focused on right now as an organization. And I think that's, I think that's awesome. Um, now, uh, further, you, you have gotten to be involved in this a little bit already yourself, haven't you? How's that been? Yeah. Um, last weekend, actually, I was involved in one, um, it was called learn to hunt. Um, and this one was specifically about deer. Um, it's, uh, it was kind of a joint effort between, uh, QDMA, National Wild Turkey Federation, uh, Michigan DNR, uh, Pheasants Forever has a role in it. Um, and they do these for different species. They have them small game, turkey, pheasant. Um, basically what it is is we've got um, – we've this, this program has received grants from uh, the Cabela's Outdoor Fund where they've been able to go out and purchase crossbows and camo and ground blinds um, through that grant and then also different branches – uh, and chapters will will donate money um, for these types of programs. So what we did is, uh, I kind of gave like a deer hunting 101 um, uh, presentation on a Saturday morning. We spent some time uh, at the range with crossbows, and then we had there's four people there. We were supposed to have eight, but we had a just torrential downpours that day. I think scared some people away, but we ended up having four people come and. Um, we were able to go out with mentors then those, those new hunters were able to go out with mentors in the afternoon on Saturday and then Sunday uh, morning. Um, we unfortunately didn't uh, harvest any deer that weekend, but, but they got a, a processing demonstration and a butchering demonstration. And, um, you know, I, I think every one of those people left and said, yeah, we, we want to do this again. One gal that came had already purchased a crossbow. Um, so I mean, these are the people that are going to go out and start contributing funds to Pittman Robertson dollars and they can go out and replicate these types of, you know, they can go, they can go hunt on their own where a, where a youth is going to need a, a, 
a family member or a friend or somebody to drive them to a spot where these people can go out and do that themselves the next day if they wanted to. Um, so yeah, I got to do that one. One of our branches up in uh, Northern Michigan, our tip of the mitt branch, they're doing a field to fork program where they've got three hunters hunting with mentors throughout the season. And uh, one of those uh, new hunters shot a buck the first week of the season already. And wow. so just a ton of great success going on with that kind of stuff. That's really cool. And it's, I, I, it's, it's great to see you guys and the different branches out there, you know, stepping up and donating their time and, and funds to, to make that happen. Because it's one thing to say it, it's a, it's a lot more to actually go and actually do these things. So it was, I, I think it's pretty awesome, Josh, seeing you going out on these mentor hunts. You went and you did the youth hunt, uh, a weekend or two before that you did a veterans hunt. Um, and I know you're leaving again next week to do another youth hunt, helping out people. Um, so I just want to say, like, as a friend, I, I commend you and everyone else out there who is donating their time in this kind of way. Like, huge props. I'm so glad that people are doing that. I need to do a better job of doing more of that. Um, I was hoping to be able to meet up with you guys for that uh, that first-time hunter event last weekend. didn't work out. But I, I need to do a better job of that. And I hope that people listening, I hope there's a few people listening that uh, – maybe are, are intrigued by the opportunity to help mentor some new hunters too. And if that's the case, Ryan, um, how can a hunter listening get involved and, and, and be able to get involved with the programs you guys have out there to become a mentor or, or helper with some of these things you guys are doing? Well, I mean, there's a couple of different ways and I'm glad you asked. Um, <clears throat> each, almost every state now, not every state, if they don't have it designated, R3 coordinators, that's uh, retain, react, activate, and recruit new hunters. Um, states are, you know, state agencies are putting in an R3 coordinator. If they don't have an acting one, uh, you know, specifically hired for that position, they have, they usually have somebody within the state that's covering that. So that the first thing they can do if they don't want to be involved with a QDMA branch or if maybe there's not one close to them, um, you know, they can go through the state through their R3 coordinator. They can definitely put you in touch with a hunter or a group of people or, you know, the next event they have coming up, um, or they could easily seek out a QDMA branch. I mean, we're not in everyone's backyard, but, you know, usually there's one anywhere within the Whitetails range within driving distance. Um, reach out to them and, and tell them that you'd like to be involved. Or it could be as simple as, you know, you don't have to be involved with the group and you don't have to be involved with the state or a three coordinator. You can just, if you're a hunter, you know, you can do your part by seeking somebody out that maybe it's you work with or go to church with or teaches you life school, wherever it may be, that wants to learn how to be a hunter, take them hunting with you. Teach them how to be a hunter. Um, you know, if just think about it, you know, there's somewhere around, you know, 10 or 11 million deer hunters in the country right now, depending on who's doing the counting. But uh, if half of them took one new person hunting next year, you know, we could fix the problem in one year type of deal. So, it could be something just as that simple. Seek out somebody that's never hunted before but has the interest that you know, may run in your circles and take the time to take them to teach them to be a hunter. And I know it sounds like a lot, and even with me, I, I don't know, I hunt private land. I have a, a lease in Ohio, and but honestly, I've done this now for a couple of years. We've had kind of an internal QDMA challenge amongst our staff that, you know, we're going to seek out new hunters every year, you know, and, and take at least one per, uh, and we've done that. And it is a very satisfying and gratifying thing to do. Um, you know, you, you, it's not, you don't mind doing it. Once, once you get involved and see the level of enthusiasm that these people display, 
um, the appreciation they have for you taking the time out. And, and honestly, you develop some of the best friendships you may ever have in your life through hunting. And this is a perfect example of that. So, you know, don't, don't be you know, intimidated by it. Don't think it's too much or, you know, you only have so much time. Uh, the sport is depending on it. We need people out there to teach others how to become hunters. And, you know, think of it, think of it as almost a, a sense of as, as your responsibility. Uh, just one a year, you know, introduce them. It doesn't have to be deer hunting either. Uh, that's another thing. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with teaching somebody how to be a small game hunter. Take them squirrel hunting. Take them rabbit hunting. Take them pheasant hunting. Um, you know, just get them involved in the outdoors and let them progress naturally. You know, that that's that's how we're going to fix this for sure yeah now on the flip side what if what if someone listening is is a new hunter and maybe they want to hunt so they've been listening to hunting podcasts they stumble across wired to hunt somehow they managed to listen to the very advanced stuff we talked about without getting discouraged and shutting this thing off what if there's a, a new aspiring hunter and they're hearing about these programs and they're thinking in their heads whoa, that would be amazing. I could really use a weekend mentor program. That would be such a great start for me. How can they get tapped in and signed up for a program like this? Where do they find that information? Yep, same type of thing. Our website, um, you know, we went from last year, I think, Josh, we did, I think, two or three nationwide, and we're going to do 15, 18, or 20 this year. Uh, we, and obviously we hope to build on for that next year. So our website, we have all of our, our uh, field to fork programs listed. You can get involved that way. And then again, you know, through your state agencies and the R3 coordinator. I mean, one phone call to the state agency, especially with a specific R3 coordinator, uh, you know, that's their job. If you're a hunter and want to learn how to hunt, they're going to they're gonna place you within the right people uh, for sure. Awesome. Well. Yeah, I'll, I'll add one more thing to that too is, um, there's a lot of different resources out there. Like I, I know just recently, a lot of us QDMA staff just became digital mentors, um, on a, a platform called powder hook. Mark, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that or not, but, mm-hmm. um, that's a great place for people to check out too, and, and maybe be able to connect with, uh, a, a mentor through something like that, where you can find people who are willing to, to take you out. Um, and maybe you don't even need someone to take you out, but you have questions for them. Um, you know, so many different ways to connect with, with people in uh, this day and age. And, um, I mean, it's, do a Google search. You can, you can find people, I'm sure, get on Facebook. There's groups or, you know, like I said, there's digital mentors on this powder hook um, network that you can check out. Um, so all kinds of different opportunities to get connected with people. Can you- social media is going to, not to interrupt you, Joe, social media, um, you know, Instagram is, there's a, the local board moving on, you know, there's a group of people that want to source their own protein and hunters, and being a hunter, you know, one of the best ways to do that. Um, the, yeah, just about any avenue of communication you can think of, you know, you can get a hold of somebody and, and hopefully for the most part, you're going to find a, a willing mentor out there that's going to help be helpful to you. Yeah. Josh, can you elaborate on what the digital mentor thing is with powder hook? Um, what is the service that you'll be providing to folks by way of that? So if someone's hearing this and they're thinking, Oh, I could use a digital mentor. Yeah. <clears throat> what does that mean? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Cause we just signed or I just signed up for it last week. But, um, what I did is I basically went on there and put some information about myself, um, how long I've been hunting, what species I've been hunting, um, how far I'm willing to travel to, to, uh, mentor a new hunter. Um, and so people can, can look they pull up a map or put in your zip code and they can find 
where these di- different mentors are that they can try to connect with um, if they're looking for someone to take them out hunting um, or kind of asking questions. So just kind of a cool networking tool for for new hunters um, to, to get involved with people that uh, are in their area. They just maybe don't know about them. Very cool. Awesome. And that's the, the Powder Hook app. That sounds like a great way to uh, yep. to get connected with Furter and get Furter to take you out to his favorite tree stands. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> all right can i can i touch on one more thing let me Please. touch on one more thing mark yeah do it um and this goes back to what ryan was saying about just you know we need to do a better job as hunters taking taking other people out and you know one of the people one of the one of the individuals that's going through our uh, field to fork program up at the tip of the mitt branch um he has worked for a company that is very involved in um outdoor clothing and work um workwear um, and I, I know that he works every day with other hunters and he is interacting with other hunters on a daily basis. And he's just never had anybody say, Hey, why don't you come out with me? Um, you know, we just did another field to fork. I think this one was in New York, Ryan, where Hank, New Hampshire, Forster, our, our, yeah, New Hampshire. Okay. So there was a gun manufacturer that had people reach out to us that they wanted to learn how to hunt. And you're, you know, there's people there that hunt, right? I mean, there's no reason why we can't do a better job as, as hunters saying, Hey, you know, identify these people that have shown an interest in it and then reach out and offer that lending hand to, to get them out in the woods and, um, you know, be a mentor to them. We just got to do a better job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very, very true. Well, I certainly appreciate what you guys are doing. So, so thank you, Ryan and Furter and quality deer management association for, for stepping up and, and leading in this way. Um, I a hundred percent agree. It's necessary. And I, I think, you know, we need to wrap it up here, but I want to give you a chance, Ryan, if there's any last plug you want to make or any last topic we haven't touched on that you really want to make sure you can, um, mention, uh, if you've got any final parting words, well, what would you like to, would you like to share? I, I think the only thing is, I know we definitely dove into advanced level and I don't, the last thing I want to do is, is intimidate or scare somebody away from hunting. I think it's important to get out there and do whatever you want to do and enjoy it and, uh, you know, just cherish the moment type of deal. And it doesn't have to be that serious. It can be a lot, you know, it's a lot of fun. If it is, it's also a lot of fun if you're not taking it that serious. So the, the, the main thing I want to leave people with is, you know, don't be intimidated. And if you're doing anything, it's better than nothing. Get out there and enjoy the great outdoors and, and being a deer hunter for sure. Absolutely. hundred percent agree with that. And I will say, and I'll probably mention this at the beginning of the episode. So this is the second time you'll probably have heard this. But if you are new, make sure and go back and listen to that Deer Hunting 101 podcast we did. Great kind of starting point that will help put some of these basic pieces in place so that when you go back and listen to a lot of these other podcasts that we've done that go more advanced, you have that foundation. You know, Do not, just like you said, Ryan, don't feel bad if some of these things are a little bit complicated because it took all of us, all three of us here talking you know, years and years and years and decades of experience and, and trial and error to start figuring some of these things out and making sense of it all in our heads. So um, it's perfectly fine to, to go through that process yourself. Um, and one more one more thing, Mark, for, for new hunters is QDMA's got a free ebook that people can go download, and it's a great resource for new hunters and um, even people that are experienced. It has some great info in there. It's a, a free download from our website. 
So I just go to QDMA.com and, and what should I search for? Or is, where do I find it? Do you know? Yeah, put an ebook or I think it's QDMA.com forward slash ebook, I think is a direct um, link to it. It's Deer Hunting 101. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah. Well, that uh, that's mm-hmm. an awesome tool as well. So, further, Ryan. Uh, big thank you. I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun, Ryan. I really enjoyed you kind of divulging the, the, the in-depth wind and thermal knowledge that, that I think for those guys who are trying to take things to the next level, for guys and girls who want to take it to the next level, I think this stuff is, is really an important focus area. So I found it fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. Go further. <laughs> and with that, <laughs> let's wrap this one up. <laughs> and that's a wrap folks so thank you for listening i hope you will check out those mentorship programs and get involved like further mentioned um and other than that i suppose i'll just give you all another reminder that my new wired hunt content will be featured and shown now on the meateater.com it's the new website for meat eater inc which is the new company I'm a part of now with Steve Rinella and a handful of other folks. Lots of cool new content there, not just my stuff, but now stuff from Steve, stuff from Ben O'Brien and Hunting Collective, stuff from April Voki and Anchored, uh, Eduardo Garcia, and all sorts of other people will be showing up there soon. Check it on out, browse around, lots of interesting stuff. With that all said, I hope you're going to be in the tree here soon. I hope you have an amazing hunt and hunts coming up. Hope the wind is in your face. I hope that big bucks will be running into the bottom of your tree stand, and I hope you shoot straight. So until next time, good luck out there. Thank you so much for following along and being a part of the Wired Hunt community, and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.